Hey, welcome to Socialism for All. This is S4A live stream number 98 being recorded on May 4, 2023. And uh, with me at twitch.tv slash socialism S4A are 44 viewers. So we're getting started with today's stream. Uh, we usually do these Wednesdays. Um, this week we didn't do Wednesday. We're doing Thursday instead you know, some weeks not a lot stands out to me in the news, and then some weeks it's like everything stands out, and this was kind of more the latter type of week, so there's a lot of stuff um, in this stream I want to get into more on the AI topic, because that's something that is hugely interesting to me right now, and um, I want to follow up on it. It has massive ramifications for social change in the short term, both good and bad. Um, but then there is this sort of existential question of can we survive as a species? This is, goes beyond a class question. Can we survive as a species, um, superhuman, uh, artificial general intelligence? Which, to be clear, is not here yet, but it could be here in the not-too-distant future. And that's the question is, um, are we prepared for that? The answer is definitely no. Then the question is, well, are we getting prepared for that? Like, when will we be prepared? And the answer to that is no one is really preparing to be adequately ready in anything like the near-term future at all. Because the progress on the technology is rapidly outpacing the alignment and control research. So, you know, if your, prog your technological progress, your technological capability of what the thing can do is going five times faster then your research on understanding, analyzing, and controlling it, well, I think it's pretty clear at some point that just uh, any hope of catching up with it really is is just gone. And so um, we read an article. I just turn my mic gain down a little bit. Um, we read an article last week from somebody whose name I mispronounced. I had Eliezer. I hadn't um, heard anything from him before. Eliezer? I think is, the, I don't have it in front of me, so now I'm going to screw it up again. Uh, we're going to get into some more stuff from Yudkowsky. We'll just call him Yudkowsky for right now, um, who is kind of an AI doomer, but with good reason, had um, been in the field for 20 years and found that the kind of assumptions that were going on in the artificial intelligence field 20 years ago are very different from the realities that have come out today. So GPT-4 technology was just put out recently, and it is kind of stunning everybody as far as what it, what it can do. It is roughly around human intelligence now, and it's likely that the next iteration would be smarter than human. Um, it can do things like pass the bar exam, for example. So it's already, you know, somewhere around um, pretty smart human intelligence. Obviously, human intelligence is a, is a range. Not everybody has exactly the same intelligence. Um, but uh, it's proving itself to be very capable. How reliably it can, you know, score highly on different tasks is sort of a, a work in progress. We're still evaluating it, but um, clearly it's progressing very quickly is the point. And the, again, the uh, alignment and control, um, you know, and, and just analysis of like, do we understand what this thing is doing? Not progressing nearly as fast. So we have some resources on that. Um, I have some COVID things that I'd like to get into if we have time. I'll probably get to the AI stuff first as more of the priority. Um, also have some various odds and ends 
and you know just <clears throat> things that are coming up in the news current events want to look at things like the uh, first republic bank failure we covered a few weeks ago maybe like a month and a half ago i don't know um i want to say it was live stream 89 the uh silicon valley bank failure and signature bank and first republic bank almost failed but then some other of the really big banks stepped in with a quote rescue plan well so you know flash forward a month and a half it didn't work that went down so we'll read a little bit about that some other things uh 10 year old children found working in a mcdonald's like late at night until 2 a.m or something like that so the u.s continues its descent into well so neoliberalism we're in the neoliberal error era i always call it the error it's probably a you know unconscious slip on my part Anyway, uh, it's certainly not good, let's put it that way. But neoliberalism, neo means new. Uh, liberalism means, well, you know, opening it up to markets, capitalism, etc. So we had classical liberalism, early capitalism, sort of culminated in the robber baron period and the Gilded Age, late 19th century extreme inequality. In the early 20th century, you had vigorous revolutionary and progressive and reform movements which forced, uh, in some countries, revolution, in other countries, massive reform, which in part, those reforms in the capitalist countries where the capitalists hung on to power, where there wasn't a revolution. Um, the uh, reforms that they did, such as the New Deal in the United States, were a response to, you know, just the existence of the USSR and the pressures of the labor movement and the communist movement and and everything else that was going on domestically. But they were like, we got to throw these people a bone and try to strengthen our system against these threats. So anyway, the New Deal. So you get the golden age of social democracy then from the early 20th century to about the 1970s. And then the capitalists decided that it was politically feasible for them to start dismantling those concessions and re-liberalizing. So that was the... I mean, again, capitalism never completely went away, but it was hemmed in to some point. Workers got more rights and there were formal systems for sort of, um, you know, working out grievances within the system. And then again, as soon as the capitalists had an opportunity to feel like they could get away with it, they did away with those things and began the neoliberal project of deregulation, defunding public things and then privatizing everything that they could. We're now about four plus decades into that process. And so, you know, everything's coming back from that early pre-reform, pre-revolution era, including child labor. You can see pushes for that all over the place. Um, don't want to get too far ahead of myself, so let's do our usual introduction. If you're new to the channel, which in the last 28 days, over 600 of you are, welcome. Um, we do do streams usually on a weekly basis where we cover current events. We do chat live and discuss some various topics on people's minds in the chat. Um, we do current events and things like that. And then, of course, audiobooks in between of Marxist uh, theory and history. This week, I had wanted to get two Lenin ones up. Um, I have Lenin on May Day coming up. However, um, I, I actually announced to the patrons which, by the way, let's thank the patrons, get their names um, up on the screen. Here we go. This one's actually current. Nope, that one's not current. How about that? Um, let me get the current one. 
Where is it? There we go. It's from yesterday. <clears throat> Thanks to the patrons, patreon.com slash socialism for all. I would make content even if nobody supported. Um, this topic is interesting to me and I'm trying to learn it. Doing the channel helps me learn it. Um, you know, and of course, also teaching other people. I know that that's useful to other people, but I wouldn't have so much time to spend on it if I wasn't getting the financial support. We try to keep this channel non-commercial. I don't run ads. I don't do sponsorships, try to sell you a VPN network or whatever. Uh, so it is viewer supported. Thanks again to the patrons. I'll leave their names up for a minute. By the way, names in yellow have been um, supporting for over a year. Names in green supporting for over two years. It'll be a few months before our first blue name, but that is coming up soon for three years. Um, anyway, uh, where was I even going with this? Um, I went too long on the patrons thing. So I was welcoming new people to the channel. The audiobooks. I had announced to the patrons that I was going to be posting the really long stream that we did last Thursday, number 97. Almost five hour long stream. Really good one in my opinion, but uh, long. Took me a while to edit it. And, uh, you know, after doing a five hour stream, I can't just pick it right up and edit it. <laughs> you know, I need like a little bit of break so I don't just like lose my mind. Uh, thinking about these topics, I need to maintain some sort of mental freshness in that process. So I had to put it down for a few days, but I told the patrons I was going uh, to do two Lennon audiobooks. And in fact, the first one turned out to be, I thought they were going to both be about 15 minutes long. The first one was about 32 minutes long. And uh, so anyway, the, the second one has been delayed. We will get to that as well as other things. And we have uh, more entries from the basic Marxism-Leninism study guide playlist coming up soon, as well as pieces about China's restoration of capitalism. So interesting stuff coming up. Um, but, you know, I have the time to spend on it that I have and, you know, I work it in where I can. Um, in any case, the Lenin audio that we did get up, and we'll move on from thanking the patrons right now. The Lenin audio that I did get up was Imperialism... What was the name of it? It, was, it had to do with Italy, um, but I'm going to botch the actual name if I'm not. Imperialism and Socialism in Italy. That was the name of it. And a really good piece about the Marxist-Leninist understanding of imperialism, which came about um, really, uh, this was one of Lenin's major contributions. You know, early 20th century capitalism had consolidated beyond the point that it was consolidated in Marx and Engels' time, and so was showing new emergent properties in the 20th century, which Lenin described in his work, Imperialism, the Highest Stage of Capitalism, and which, you know, he also hits on those themes in a variety of other pieces. Um, and uh, that is one of them, where he talks about how in nascent ascendant capitalism, individual firms compete with each other and then the winners pretty much absorb the losers um, and capital consolidates along those lines at a certain point of development the capitalist countries will do this with each other and um, they export capital to other countries and then uh, compete over super profits and things like that and then when you get contests contradictions between the different imperialist countries Contradiction meaning their interests do not entirely align. Um, sometimes they work it out diplomatically and negotiate. Sometimes they have wars, and that was World War One, an inter-imperialist um, 
conflict. And of course, they use the proletariat as uh, the chess pieces on their board to go kill each other when that's not really in our interest. So um, actual socialists will not align with the bourgeoisie in those inner imperialist struggles, but um, try instead to turn, uh, you know, the imperialists hand you weapons and say, here, go kill other workers so that uh, we, the 1% of, quote, your country, can get a leg up over the competition. Well, we can think of maybe some other uses for, um, you know, since conflict's already broken out, might as well turn it into a revolution, class, class war. So anyway, uh, that's what's kind of new on the channel for the moment. The other thing actually I want to mention, it's nice to celebrate these little wins. Uh, we hit a million views. So there you go. Um, the channel's been going since February 2020. I promote it pretty hard. A lot of you also share the links, which is really appreciated. But yeah, we hit a million views. So people are actually listening to this stuff. So I guess congrats to us all. Um, the community has grown substantially uh, in the you know little over three years that we've been doing this. Again, we're on live stream number 98 now, and I'm starting to get some idea of how to actually run a live stream which is awesome benefits us all um but yeah i also want to thank the people who show up in the youtube comments and give their thoughts uh, many many times often uh those are intelligent comments that um you know provoke thought in me and inspire uh story ideas research ideas and so on but also the people who show up for these um twitch live streams and contribute their thoughts in real time which i read out in the streams um, I could do these streams without you and without the mods that kind of keep the chat in line, but it wouldn't be as good. So I really appreciate uh, you showing up there. It gives us a lot more to think about and talk about and discuss. Other than that, I mean, people sometimes ask, is socialism for all a party? No, it's a YouTube channel. I'm a Marxist-Leninist studying anti-revisionist Marxism-Leninism, and... That's what we do here. If you're looking for a Marxist study group beyond what we're doing here, uh, you might consider Politsturm, P-O-L-I-T-S-T-U-R-M. And for people who enjoyed Doug Jaffray's um, story that we uh, cut out of the live stream and posted uh, separately in addition to posting it within the live stream, um, the union activism within a yellow company union that was actually produced for Politsturm. In their study groups, they have their members produce uh, Marxist analysis. I'm, I'm trying to say this uh, in the wrong way. They have their members do homework. So you're not just studying. You're applying the analytical tools that you learn from studying Marxism to their own conditions and produce reports. And that was one of the things that was produced there. So I... I know a number of people who are active with Politsturm, and I think that they're doing good work. I think that they're producing pretty good quality analysis. So again, you might check that out. They're also international. So it's uh, based in Russia, Ukraine, Armenia. There's people in the United States that collaborate. So you can get out of that, quote, Western left sort of thing and connect internationally with other communists from around the world in that, you know, forum there that they that they have set up they do also have an english language language youtube and a russian language youtube uh, but to me that seems currently like one of the more promising things 
um, for you know a communist think tank at this stage and possibly a party down the line we'll see anyway um, beyond that beyond the sort of strictly Marxist realm get to know your local left there are labor unions tenant unions left-wing political parties that are not Democrat Republican or libertarian that don't take the corporate money that are involved maybe in ballot efforts or in labor union support or whatever else anti-racist struggles general anti-fascist research and so on get involved with your local left and size it up you know we can't improve the left if we don't get to know it and have that two-way dialectical relationship um, also the next time that you know major protests like we haven't seen major major nationwide protests in the u.s since 2020 and black lives matter george floyd all of that stuff um, but it will happen again and when it does it's good to you know have half a dozen at least names and numbers in your phone where you can get something organized you know other organizers you can network with so do get out there touch grass meet people let them get to know you and even if you're not um don't consider yourself a strong leader or something every leader and every organization needs supporters and needs people that can volunteer even to just do kind of simple grunt work and uh so you you are needed at whatever level you can contribute at and i know that there are thousands of organizers across the country desperately just in need of more people um, willing to just show up and and just sort of uh, contribute to things do be careful because there are some bad organizations out there that's why i don't really recommend specific ones but i am confident that you out there collectively can figure out what's going on in your area have them point you to other projects and and you be careful and assess um, what you're getting into all right so all of that said um, let me just see what's going on in the chat so far I uh, don't want to get too sidetracked but I want to catch up I see there's now 54 people and a lot of posting going on before we get into the current events odds and ends for today a lot of people saying that the AI talk from the last live stream number 97 stuck in their head. Absolutely. I think that this is an important topic that, you know, um, I don't think it's all doom and gloom with and but there's an asterisk there. There's a key caveat. I don't think it's all doom and gloom. I think that in the short term, AI is going to produce like really remarkable, almost unfathomable, cool stuff, you know, there's things where you can um, take a picture of your refrigerator contents and it'll just like tell you good recipes that you can use out of like the stuff that's in there. It's almost like, um, you know, there's a lot of people that, um, well, let me put it this way. Uh, it's like everyone suddenly has a really smart friend that they can just ask any question to and get like a pretty good intelligent response, which is not something that everybody has had access to uh, previously. Also, there are incredible things as far as, you know, content generation. You can ask it to do things and it will give you like pretty good summary answers. Already, um, we're at the point where it seems to be making homework assistance sites like Chegg. Um, it's giving them a run for their money because you can just ask it a question. It'll give you like a three or four paragraph write up that's sourced and everything. So there's kind of amazing things happening, and that's not what, I, and to be super clear about this, when people talk about doom scenarios with AI, they're not talking about chat GPT. They're not talking about Google Bard. They're not talking about stuff like that. 
they're talking about a couple of generations from now with more autonomous, superhumanly intelligent things. So I do think in the short term, there's going to be amazing stuff that um, it, it'll, you'll be able to just ask it a question and it'll be like you have your own private research nerd sort of in your pocket working for you. The other thing is I think that there will also be massive disruption and we're going to look at some things related to that. Um, for example, call centers. There are 3 million people, roughly, just under 3 million people, employed as call center operators in the U.S. alone. ChatGPT, I think itself could probably, like, that's not that hard of a job as far as, um, you know, people are already, the human operators already are following scripts, most of them. Sometimes you need to um, break out and talk to, like, a manager for some really complicated question. But the humans are already reading scripts. I would expect probably millions of people, just call center people, are going to be displaced alone, like in the next few years. What are they going to do for work? So, I mean, that's just one example. The It does not take long to think of many scenarios where you're seeing tens of millions of people being put out of work in like five years. And so for all the cool sort of consumery stuff that's going to happen the employment stuff is just like a massive question mark. That's in the short term. The long term is, or even the medium term, is where you start getting into, and we don't exactly know, questions about um, literal survival. Can we survive an AI like that? And we'll, we'll get into specifics of that later. But yeah, it stuck with me too. Um, I have <clears throat> spent the last week uh, reading and listening to a lot of stuff about that and, and we'll discuss it later. So, um, the AI shit hit me like when I understood climate change would kill us like 20 years ago. Yeah, to be honest, AI is probably, as far as an existential threat, on a shorter timeline even than climate change. So, yeah. Because I've seen people doing that too, like, oh, well, you're getting worried about AI. What about climate change? This could literally be more imminent. As far as uh, as far as a threat of it escaping control and not being aligned with our interests, so um, it's very concerning. Both are very concerning, and both have kind of the same class roots. Who's who owns and who is developing these things? Capitalists. Now, when we do get into the AI talk, um, one thing you'll find if you get into this is most of the people who have been dominating the entire discussion of AI is like tech bros for you know two decades and these people for them society is like an afterthought you know they're like oh i'm so smart i can just figure out society on you know uh like do some napkin math and just figure out sociological questions no <laughs> and this is the flaw of having stem people thinking that they're just sort of gods and not requiring them to do any kind of humanities or social sciences anything else but sort of being locked into this silo of like math and tech stuff it's not good at all because then you get these people who on behalf of the capitalists who fund them and many of them do become capitalists themselves once they get a successful company generating millions of dollars going um they have like literally zero social awareness or understanding one of the things i think about yudkowsky that's good is the reason he said he started speaking out is because he started talking he became deeply concerned 
from within the tech world, but none of the tech bros he was working around shared these concerns because they all have dollar signs in their eyes and massive egos about what they're doing. It's all gone to their heads. But then he started talking to normal people outside the tech sphere about this and they were all concerned. And he's like, oh, maybe I should talk to normal people. And I'm like, yes, yes, please do. So he's already made the sort of step outside of that. And again, we'll follow up with more details um, later in the stream. The anarcho-primitivist essay, no words. Thank you for reading that ridiculous stuff. Yeah, absolutely. Um, we, we're not going to do any more anarcho-primitivism stuff probably for a while, but we mentioned that in the last two streams, the sort of uh, the ultimate in reaction. Um, or as uh, one commenter put it, uh, anarcho-primitivism, an even more infantile disorder. Although actually, to be honest, that's not entirely correct because when Lenin called quote, left-wing communism, an infantile disorder. He meant that it was um, an issue of a lack of political maturity of the communist movement to sort of like want it all and now and, you know, the things that are addressed in that work. Um, and of course, left-wing is in quotes because they think that they are left-wing, but it's actually um, not. Whereas anarcho-primitivism, yeah, there's some sort of like left elements, but it almost goes more into like eco-fascism consciously. So need to train an AI bot on Marxist theory and see if it slips into revisionism. Yeah, I mean, you can, um, you know, work with these things. There's <laughs> see what you can do. In fact, we'll we'll look at some responses that Google Bard gave me on some questions related to communist organizing later. People trying to get caught up on the old live streams. Yeah. Um, I streamed a lot recently, but I don't know. I'm still trying to find the balance on that. I feel like either I can't do it weekly or I might start having to do it at like random times, but it is a challenge for me sort of doing the streams at the same time every week. Um, there are times when I'm like, I wish I could just do the stream now, but I haven't, you know, promoted it. And we might just have to try that in the future, but I'm not, I'm not decided yet. Speaking of highly individualist anarcho-primitivism, I saw a brief documentary on that intentional community that went big on TikTok called The Garden, capital G. Oh man, that stuff is reactionary to the nth degree. Yeah, I mean, I, I'm familiar with like the concept of eco-villages and intentional communities and stuff like that. Um, and, you know, I, I haven't looked at that stuff in like over 15 years. But um, yeah, I mean, it's like, you could make sort of uh, comparisons to maybe something like, you know, Pennsylvania Dutch or something like that. People who like really uh, cut themselves off and go to a different standard of technology and things like that, which is also like super reactionary because of all the religious um, conservatism and all like that. I mean, conservatism doesn't <laughs> kind of just barely scratches the surface. Um but yeah, that's probably not the kind of solutions we're looking for. Yet there's a lot of reading um, in Marxism. This is a kind of an important point to make and just remind people of being a Marxist is not just an identity you just slap on yourself. Um, no more than, you know, being a chemist. Is, is, you cannot d divorce being a chemist from in some way, shape or form studying chemistry can't really just slap biologist on yourself without 
in some way studying biology, actually. You can't just, I'm a biologist, and then just pull stuff out of your ass that's completely not based in evidence, is not, um, you know, has not kept up with any of the scientific research in that field and so on. Uh, Marxism is the same way. It's not an identity. It is a collection of tools um, and philosophy for scientific social analysis. So it's a, it's a kind of sociology um, that is oriented around proletarian revolution, the future of capitalism, and what happens after capitalism. But you must study it in order to, quote, be a Marxist. It's not just sort of um, an approach. Well, I mean, it's it's an approach, but it's not just something you wing. You do have to study it. You have to come up to speed with the 175-year history of Marxist thought. And, I mean, let's even say the 200-year history of including the 25 or so, just to make it a round number, years um, of pre-Marxist socialism and anarchism that Marx and Engels started out by criticizing. So you got about 200 years of socialism and about 175 years of Marxist socialism to catch up on. It can be done. And there, there are certain texts that are more important than others and sort of read things in a certain order and things like that, that can save you time and effort. Um, but yeah, you, you have to study. Otherwise, calling yourself a Marxist is meaningless. And we see this with various other social media personalities um, calling themselves Marxist or whatever. The entire, quote, patriotic socialist, basically fascist movement um, is consists of people who cannot conduct Marxist analysis to save their lives, yet, quote, are Marxists. And, you know, anyway, there was a absolutely brain dead thread recently about uh, was uh, Sauron the good guy in the Lord of the Rings and was Sauron a Marxist and like, holy fuck, go outside. My state is banning abortion after 12 weeks. I'm about ready to leave the South. Yep, um, nice warm weather. Absolutely backward in many social dimensions. So uh, wouldn't blame you. People talking about Lenin's The State and Revolution um, as like an excellent book. Yes, I think that while there are things that you could read prior to reading State and Revolution, if from most of the U.S. left and maybe most of the Western left generally um, that particularly struggle with anarchism and the question of the relationship of the state in capitalism and then the state in socialism to a workers' proletarian revolutionary movement. I feel like if, if I could wave a magic wand and have people read one thing, it would be the state and revolution. Also, things like Principles of Communism or the Manifesto are typical early reads. But if, again, somebody said you can just make all U.S. leftists read one thing and have them actually understand it, I would say The State and Revolution, which is why I have it up for um, people. Uh, it's the first thing that people see. It's pinned on the YouTube channel. I want to mention I joined the IWW, that's the Industrial Workers of the World, or Wobblies, um, Radical Labor Union, Phoenix branch, in a group called Feed Phoenix. The founder cites Conquest of Bread as his theoretical foundation. It's an anarchist text. I owe a lot to socialism for all this. Uh, oh, I owe a lot to socialism for all. This channel really motivated me to get out and start meeting my left 
and doing what I can, even with being a single parent and working a demanding job. But that is the story of all the workers. Well, congrats. I'm glad that you got out there. You're meeting other comrades in real life. And, you know, unfortunately, this is a bit the state of the U.S. left right now. Lots of anarchists. Um, I think that the IWW's early history is one of the most inspiring things in U.S. history and U.S. labor history. Um, and, you know, just the history of the working class movement in, in the U.S. Um, unfortunately, there were a number of splits within the IWW, <clears throat> which led most of the IWW in a more anarchist, uh, anti-party direction. I think that's unfortunate. Even then, it was a phenomenal mass movement and organization that uh, had a very radicalizing effect and had many major gains uh, for the working class and the overall class struggle. Maybe not as many as there could have been had it been tied to party activity in a more significant way, but it did what it did, and and there is that. Uh, the IWW that survives today, I know that there are Marxists active in it. Um, it they use a very sort of... Um, you know, open source DIY approach to unionizing that is very anti um, the sort of, uh, well, the type of yellow unions that we talked about in the last stream that Doug talked about in the last stream and that we commented on. Um, you know, it's, it's a model of union organizing that tries to overturn all of that. However, it is less resource intensive, intensive which makes it easier for people to sort of get in on the ground floor and just get up and running with it. But um, also, uh, they haven't uh, really taken over at large employers that much. So, you know, there are there are pros and cons to that approach. And I don't know, I think we probably need um, a one big union of a, of a different, slightly different type um, to come back. But that is on the question of rebuilding the labor movement anyway. Yes, I'm glad that you're out there uh, meeting other people, having them meet you, <clears throat> and seeing what you can do in your area. That's key. You know, that's where the class struggle is happening. None of this really happens in isolation. And uh, that's how we take steps forward together as a class. Um, so, yeah. I'm no huge Chomsky fan, but seeing that he met with Epstein multiple times broke my heart a bit. Not sure I'd be anti-imperialist without being introduced to Chomsky. Well, you know, I guess it's just another lesson in not having too many heroes because, uh, especially in this country, um, the amount of controlled opposition is just fucking insane. <laughs> and, you know, um, take it and try to take it in stride because there's there's a lot of fakes out there. That's all I can really say. I'm not I've never been a big Chomsky fan at all. And I definitely would be an anti-imperialist without without Chomsky myself. But um, yeah, I understand that it's more formative for a lot of people having like a Chomsky phase. Um, I, I don't know about the Jeffrey Epstein Chomsky <laughs> crossover. Maybe somebody can su supply some more details. I haven't heard that. But um, I don't know. You got a guy sitting there arguing like it doesn't matter who killed JFK. Don't even look into it. Like, what? If you realize that the CIA maybe working with the mafia, like, shot the president, yeah, I think that might actually lead some people to a somewhat broader understanding of what's going on in this country. So, I mean, there's just, like, a ton of brain-dead shit that Chomsky has said on purpose multiple times that I'm just like, what the fuck? Like, I, I to say I'm not a Chomsky fan is, like, a massive understatement. 
But there you go, anarchism, what do you want? I mean, let alone shit he said about the USSR and Lenin, so yeah. Great clip of Piers Morgan getting slammed by a young atheist on live TV. Does that guy ever get tired of getting owned? I feel like he got owned off the air years ago. Is he still going? Piers believes other countries are jealous of our backwardness and bootlicking ceremonies. Oh, was this about the, um, like the, uh, the coronation or something? Crazy fucking shit. I, it's amazing to me that that guy still has like any, any credibility at all. He's been publicly owned like so many times. Chomsky's whole life was being anti-communist left. He was never a dangerous person. That's why he, uh, had so much like unchallenged popularity. I, I tend to agree. That's not to say he never made good points, but it's also like, did other people who had overall better politics make the same points? And should we have been listening to them instead? I think that's more the point. If we let Elon Musk run the AI industry, he'd make it fall into the ground. Um, yeah, so actually there was a point. Uh, so Musk was one of the people that signed the future of life. He was one of the over 27,000 people who signed the um, we need a six-month moratorium on AI development past GPT-4. Now, there's a big catch to that. I'm going to come back in a minute. But um, apparently, I was listening to more of Yudkowsky talking about Musk. Apparently, Musk thinks that we can, like, just technology our way out. It's like the same thing that the libertarians say about climate change. Oh, we can just technology our way out of climate change. Nope. Um, in fact, Yudkowsky called the we can tech our way out of this um, take by Elon Musk, quote, deranged. So there's people who are out there saying, oh, yeah, these um, doomer scenarios like Yudkowsky is saying, that serves the capitalist class. No, actually, most of the capitalist class is salivating eagerly over AI. Um, that's not what you see at all. And in fact, people attack Yudkowsky. And I, I just choose him. There are many people, um, uh, there are many people uh, attacking him. Uh, uh, sorry, I got massively distracted by something for a second. Uh, did you mean to pin that comment uh, about the trucker movement? <laughs> anyway, that th hugely threw me off. There are other people saying what Yudkowsky is saying. Uh, but he has kind of become the most prominent voice for we cannot, like we're so far beyond controlling the AI we have. If it gets much smarter, we're completely up shit creek if it turns out to be a problem, which is not a certainty at this point, but it's a strong possibility. And if it happens, we, we know that we are screwed. Um, so yeah, he is not aligned with Elon Musk on that. Now, what I was going to say about the um, the six-month moratorium letter, uh, Yudkowsky did not sign the six-month moratorium. His position was uh, he thought that it was sort of um, misleading to, to even assert that six months was any anywhere remotely near enough time to analyze the AI technology that we have, specifically GPT-4, and to get it under control. Like, it, we would need probably more, he said, like 75 years for that. So six months is not, like, it's misleading to tell the public, oh, six months will do it. Here's the other catch, and I wonder if it is why people like Musk felt comfortable signing onto that letter, is Sam Altman of OpenAI. He was just saying that he doesn't care about the six-month moratorium because they just released GPT-4 and all of their efforts for at least the next six months 
are not going to be on GPT-5. They're just going to be on understanding what GPT-4 is even doing. So basically, they rolled it out, but they're still trying to, um, you know, catch up with the implementation, the promotion, handle all the media requests, all that stuff. That's going to take more than six months. So right now, a six-month moratorium on post-GPT-4 technology is moot, you know? It's like um, somebody's about to go to bed and you say, wait a minute, I'm going to call a moratorium. I'm going to call an eight-hour moratorium on you eating, walking around, or talking. Well, it's meaningless because they're literally going to sleep. Like, that was going to happen anyway, in other words. So, it, you know, it's misleading to, um, to think, first of all, we could get it, according to Yudkowsky, again, a 20-year insider in the field, uh, that we could get it anywhere remotely near under control in six months. But they weren't even going to really be developing it for that long, at least that long anyway. thought that was an interesting point worth mentioning. Uh, sorry if this sounds naive, but are these headlines I'm reading about AI causing nuclear winter and other worst case scenarios really possible? Um, not today they're not, but theoretically they absolutely are. In fact, we're going to do a, uh, I'll, sh I'll tease the screenshot right now, um, the ICRC, the International Red Cross, um, has a position paper. Why don't we do this right now? So this is um, autonomous weapons. This is already a thing, okay? So if you, like me, are coming to this going, whoa, I had no idea this was this far along, yeah, you're in good company. I think most people don't realize this is this far along. But so this is the International Red Cross, and here's them talking about um, autonomous weapons. What are they? Autonomous weapons, and this is from last July, Autonomous weapons are not a work of science fiction from a distant dystopian future. They're an immediate cause of humanitarian concern and demand an urgent international political response. Senior scientific and policy advisor at the ICRC, Neil Davidson, explains. What is an autonomous weapon? Autonomous weapon systems, as the ICRC understands them, are any weapons that select and apply force to targets without human intervention. A person activates an autonomous weapon, but they do, well, let me time out. Right now, a person activates an autonomous weapon. But as we get into advanced AI, you will have AI building AI and AI triggering AI. In fact, people are familiar with ChatGPT, which is designed, as the name implies, to chat with a human. There's also AutoGPT, where you give it instructions, and then it summons other AI workers for itself to go out and autonomously do research tasks and then report back, that's auto-GPT. That exists now. So the amount of autonomy that AI gets is increasing with its intelligence. All right. It, with weapons, this is particularly concerning. All right. So for now, a person activates an autonomous weapon, but they do not know specifically who or what it will strike, nor precisely where and or when that strike will occur. This is because an autonomous weapon is triggered by sensors and software, which match what the sensors detect in the environment against a, quote, target profile that it has either been given or that, in the more advanced AIs, it develops its own target profile. All right, and I want to also say, to call it software when we're talking about AI is technically true, but it is more of a virtual mind than just software. For example, this could be the shape of a military vehicle or the movement of a person, 
or as we'll see later with the uh, Boston Dynamics robot that, you know, the little robot dogs um, that recently they installed ChatGPT into a thermal anomaly. It is the vehicle or the victim that triggers the strike, not the user. So you just set it out in the environment and it finds its own targets and then decides to strike them. Because remember, one of the fundamental things about AI makes decisions. Our concern with this process is the loss of human judgment in the use of force. It makes it difficult to control the effects of these weapons. How can the user know when they activate the weapon whether the shape that triggers the strike will in fact be a military vehicle and not a civilian car. Even if it does strike a military vehicle, what about civilians who may be in the vicinity at that moment? Might I suggest these are just not, these are brushing the surface as far as the questions go, not even scratching it, but continuing. When will these autonomous weapons come into existence? Well, mines can be considered rudimentary autonomous weapons. The serious harm they have caused to civilians in many conflicts, because their effects are difficult to control once the mines are deployed, is well documented. And it led the international community to ban anti-personnel mines in 1997. So this is also like um, the country of Laos, one of the few um, countries that still has uh, Marxist-Leninist government, um, the most heavily bombed country in the world and is still covered with unexploded ordnance. So anyway, other types of autonomous weapons have also been developed, but these tend to be used in highly constrained circumstances only. Examples include air defense systems that strike incoming missiles and some loitering munitions developed to destroy military radars, tanks, or armored vehicles. To date, these autonomous weapons have generally been used against clear-cut military targets, weapons and munitions, military radars, and enemy tanks in areas where there are few civilians or civilian objects. They also tend to be under tight human supervision with the ability to switch them off if the situation changes or something unexpected happens. But weapons technologies and practices are changing fast. Militaries and weapon developers are interested in integrating the autonomous use of force in a wider variety of weapons, platforms, and munitions, including armed drones that are currently remote controlled by human operators. But as the tech improves, you won't need the human operator. Worryingly, there is interest in using autonomous weapons to target humans directly. Why is the ICRC concerned about autonomous weapons? To put it simply, they pose humanitarian risks, legal challenges, and ethical concerns due to the difficulties in anticipating and limiting their effects. As mentioned above, they increase the dangers facing civilians, while soldiers no longer taking part in the fight, in other words, those who have surrendered or are injured, also face greater risks. Autonomous weapons can also accelerate the use of force beyond human control. While speed might be advantageous to militaries in some circumstances, when uncontrolled, it risks escalating conflicts in an unpredictable manner and aggravating humanitarian needs. And to be clear, the humanitarian toll of war is already horrific with modern weapons. Having self-directing weapons is going to make this that much worse, and possibly in ways that are currently hard for people's somewhat limited imaginations regarding technology and its impact on society to fully contemplate. 
International humanitarian law requires combatants carrying out a specific attack to make context-dependent evaluative legal judgments. The way that autonomous weapons function, where the user does not choose the specific target or the precise time or location of a strike, makes this difficult. Under what conditions could users of an autonomous weapon be reasonably certain that it will only be triggered by things that are indeed lawful targets at that time and will not result in disproportionate harm to civilians? Autonomous weapons also raise challenges from the perspective of legal responsibility. When there are violations of international humanitarian law, holding perpetrators to account is crucial to bring justice for victims and to deter future violations. Normally, investigations will look to the person who fired the weapon and the commanding officer who gave the order to attack. With the use of autonomous weapons, who will explain why an autonomous weapon struck a civilian bus, for example? There are many questions about whether alleged perpetrators of war crimes could be held responsible under existing legal regimes. Now, of course, we have questions about discrepancies in uh, and, you know, different gradients and double standards in the realm of accountability for large imperialist countries, for example, the United States versus other, uh, quote, subject countries. But this would even make this you know, that much more difficult to, you know, take the existing bad situation and complicate it even more. Ethical concerns. Most fundamentally, there are widespread and serious concerns over ceding life and death decisions to sensors and software, or again, virtual minds embodied in these things. Humans have a moral agency that guides their decisions and actions, even in conflicts where decisions to kill are somewhat normalized. Autonomous weapons reduce or even risk removing human agency in decisions to kill, injure, and destroy. This is a dehumanizing process that undermines our values and our shared humanity, to the extent that that still exists in advanced capitalism, this will probably take the rest of it. All autonomous weapons that endanger human beings raise these ethical concerns, but they are particularly acute with weapons designed or used to target human beings directly. What is the role of AI and machine learning in autonomous weapons? There is increasing interest in relying on AI, particularly machine learning, to control autonomous weapons. Machine learning software is trained on data to create its own model of a particular task and strategies to complete that task. The software writes itself in a way. Often this model will be a black box. In other words, extremely difficult for humans to predict, understand, explain, and test how and on what basis a machine learning system will reach a particular assessment or output. So let me stop there. And in Yudkowsky's conversation with Dorkesh Patel, which is like a four-hour interview, um, I think there's a uh, there's another interview with Yudkowsky that I think is better, which is one hour long. Um, and I'll put a link to that in the description. That four-hour one is probably the second best one that I've seen, in my opinion. And I think it also from listening to Patel, you can get a sense of how far removed from reality the tech bro world is. Like the questions he is asking Yudkowsky are insanely stupid from the standpoint of having any kind of social understanding of anything. Um, he's asking such absolutely brain dead questions that to anyone with any social consciousness or just not so hyped up on this tech bro, you know, hopium, it, like just it would not even occur to you to ask a question like that because the answer is so obvious. 
Um, and so as far as the black box, though, specifically in that interview, he was talking about how currently today his specialty is AI alignment, how to control these things and get it to act in alignment with human wishes. Now, again, as class conscious humans, we would always um, ask, you know, in alignment with the interests of what class? Well, currently capitalists own these things. So obviously, primarily in line with uh, the capitalist class. We're going to leave that aside for right now and come back to it later. But, um, you know, with the larger question of not ending human existence at all would at least be a start, though using them to perfectly enslave one class of humans isn't a giant step up from that. Anyway, what he was saying is that the um, alignment researchers, as of today, as GPT-4 has just been launched public, they're just barely having massive breakthroughs in understanding the processes of GPT-2. So they're more than two full steps behind this thing. That's how much development is outpacing alignment and control and analysis. So this black box model, it means just what it says. It's an opaque process. It's not transparent. You can't see the machine's, quote, thought process. You can't see the calculations and reasoning that it's doing. So you don't know if it's telling you the truth, for example. Uh, that gets you into very obvious logical problem. You know, there are some logical consequences which stem from that, which are highly concerning. Anyway, continuing. As is well known from various applications, for example, in policing, machine learning systems also raise concerns about encoded bias in terms of race, gender, and sex. You can just train the thing to be racist and do, um, you know, racial profiling or any other kind of uh, prejudicial profiling and that makes that much worse. With all autonomous weapons, it can be very difficult for a user to predict the effects. As mentioned above, the, may, the user may not even know what will trigger a strike. So this is what we were talking about in the last stream. There's examples of people talking with um, the, uh, the Google AI and the thing getting like super angry and the person not fully understanding what made it angry or how to calm it down now added an automatic weapon onto it and see what happens. Machine learning controlled autonomous weapons accentuate this concern. They raise the prospect of unpre unpredictability by design. Again, if it starts writing its own target profiles and we don't know what those target profiles are, you don't know who's safe. Who's, like even if you were to send somebody out to stop it, you wouldn't know who's safe, who isn't uh, because you wouldn't know what it is thinking. Some machine learning systems continue to learn during use, so-called active, online, or self-learning, meaning that their model of a task changes over time. So, you know, for example, when I started doing this channel three years ago, Socialism for All, I had certain goals and I had in mind um, certain processes and methods that I intended to use when I set out. Then when I uh, got the feedback of actually doing the thing, publishing the videos, getting feedback from commenters. Um, I learned more about what else was going on in the field that I was working in of doing broad-based public-facing agitation and education around Marxism and class struggle. Um, my process changed because I, I learned how to do it better um, and, you know, other things to address that I didn't know when I set out originally. So these weapons could do the same thing. Applied to autonomous weapons, if the system were allowed to learn how to identify targets during its use, how could the user be reasonably certain that the attack would remain within the bounds of what's legally permissible in war? It's an excellent question. 
Um, and again, you know, what for communists, what is legally permissible in war is, uh, you know, the, the tip of the iceberg. It's rife with capitalist hypocrisy and the capitalist idea of human rights. But it is at least some kind of a starting point uh, that it's not, you know, no holds barred total war. What does the ICRC recommend that governments and others do to respond? The ICRC has recommended that states, that is countries, adopt new legally binding rules on autonomous weapons. New rules will help to prevent serious risks of harm to civilians and address ethical concerns while offering the benefit of legal certainty and stability. First, unpredictable autonomous weapons should be prohibited. That is autonomous weapons uh, that are designed or used in a manner such that their effects cannot be sufficiently understood, predicted, and explained, including those that learn targets during use and perhaps machine learning controlled autonomous weapons in general. Second, uh, and let me just uh, remind people, when we talk about AIs having robot bodies or drones or you know any kind of sort of mobile hardware that has sensory input like microphones and cameras, um, chemical detectors, you know, analogous to your nose or like taste buds, things like that. Um, humans do not, unless you, you know, uh, unless you go down the road of sort of like telepathy, which let's say at this point is not firmly established. Um, what is firmly established is robot telepathy. That is connecting these things via a Wi-Fi type connection such that um, each individual body unlike humans in this sense, at least that we know of, uh, do not, you know, share directly information and intelligence in a conscious way. These things could, however, um, if equipped with that, you know, Wi-Fi type capability or, you know, the ability to communicate with each other like a cell phone or something. Second, autonomous weapons that are designed and used to apply force against people directly should be prohibited. And, you can almost see the United States like just crossing out, you know, should be and just writing shouldn't be. I mean, I feel like they're just going to do the exact opposite of this. Third, there need to be strict reg uh, restrictions on design and use of all other autonomous weapons to mitigate the risks mentioned above, ensure compliance with the law and address ethical concerns. As the guardian of international humanitarian law, the ICRC does not recommend creating new rules lightly. But we are also committed to promoting the progressive development of the law to ensure that existing rules are not undermined. We want to ensure the protections for those affected by conflict are upheld and when needed strengthened in the face of evolving weapons and methods of warfare. Just as with anti-personnel landmines, blinding laser weapons and cluster bombs, we need a new legally binding treaty to protect civilians and combatants. Humanity must be preserved in warfare. I feel like that is um, ceding way too much ground to warmongers, but um, they want to at least set limits. Okay. These rules could be set out in a new protocol to the Convention on Certain Conventional Weapons, CCW, or another legally binding instrument. You know, there are treaties of, of these types. So how optimistic uh, is the ICRC that the new rules, that any new rules will be adopted? We are confident that states will agree on new international rules on autonomous weapons. Most states recognize the need to ensure a measure of human control and judgment in the use of force, which will mean setting strict constraints on autonomous weapons. An increasing number of states are ready to adopt specific prohibitions and restrictions. Others recognize the need for these limits, even if they have not yet committed to new rules. Some of those states previously opposed to new rules 
are now showing greater openness, perhaps driven by deepened multilateral discussions as well as developments in recent conflicts. There are now credible and pragmatic solutions on the table for how to regulate autonomous weapons. Current military technology developments and practices make it urgent that these are taken up. What is needed now is principled political leadership by states to bring that solution forward into a legally binding instrument that will protect people for a long time to come. So that's the end of that. I just want to point out to people that they do follow up on this on their website with their position on autonomous weapon systems. This is from a year prior, May 2021. And um, I'll put it up on the screen quickly. There's only four screens if you want to pause and read it. I'm not going to read the entire thing out, um, but they do make specific recommendations uh, beyond the generalities that were mentioned in the article that I just read. And the last screen is here. <clears throat> so um, even be and again, I want to separate separate out the risk of autonomous AI controlled weapon systems. Not quite yet here, but around the corner, like the components of it exist. Somebody just has to put them together and then like work out the bugs in the system, systematize it. Um, I w the, dis the specific and particular threat of AI controlled autonomous weapons is distinct from the potential existential threat of general artificial intelligence, AGI, which could do any number of things, not specifically with what we would consider as weapons per se. But anyway, uh, did want to get in that piece on autonomous weapon systems. So let's, um, or is this, uh, so the comment had continued, are the worst case scenarios really possible or is this just marketing for venture capital? Um, I think logically as consequences of developing this technology, yes, they're absolutely really possible. Um, and uh, as far as it being marketing, for venture capital, I'm not really seeing that so much. So um, maybe you could follow up because what I, what I can tell you right now is where all the money's going into is developing the technology and much less effort is going into controlling the technology. So just that alone can tell you what they're doing. Now it's in part because developing the tech is a lot easier than um, the kind of work required to study it and control it. You know, you can dump a hundred million dollars into let's give the system more processing power. You can just scale it up that way relatively just by dumping more money into it. To do the analytical work to understand it is much more difficult. So that's one of the reasons that the control and alignment research is progressing more slowly is just difficulty. But the other thing is that where where is really the incentive in that? These people don't think uh, of society first and foremost. They don't think first and foremost of the impact um, and, you know, humanizing and mitigating the impact of this technology and all of the disruptions it will bring. Some good, many bad, uh, because we are in class society where power and benefits fall along class lines. Um they treat those things as extreme afterthoughts, if even that. So, uh, no, I don't think that this is like a calculated uh, marketing plan at all. If anything, you know, the most cynical thing that I've seen out of it is, as I was mentioning before, the six-month moratorium, 
where a lot of people signing that have got to know they weren't planning on doing GPT-5 work in the next six months anyway. So um, if there is some sort of cynical uh, misleading efforts, it seems to me so far from what I've seen to be going more in that direction. Science without conscience is the ruin of the soul, Rabelais. Uh, yeah, well, I mean, hook it up to capitalism, and what do we have? We have all kinds of inhuman stuff that somebody uh, speculated they could profit off of, and, you know, it's being implemented over people's objections. I mean, that is the, you know, vast, um, the vast majority of the masses of humanity are not going to really benefit from it. And, in fact, a lot of it will be used to oppress people, just like all previous technology in the class struggle has been used. This is why, again, our overarching emphasis is on socialism and the ending of capitalism. Ten-year-olds working at McDonald's. What the fuck is happening in America? Let's look. Let's read the story now. McDonald's. <clears throat> All right, we got a four-screen article. This is from the Omaha World Herald. Omaha is in Nebraska. For people not familiar with the U.S., that's roughly dead center. Uh, in the United States, like north of Texas. Ten-year-old children were found working at a Louisville McDonald's until 2 a.m. Okay. Two, oh, and this is by, who wrote this? <clears throat> Michelle Watson, CNN. Two ten-year-old children were found working at a Louisville McDonald's restaurant, sometimes until 2 a.m., the U.S. Department of Labor said Tuesday. The revelation was part of an investigation into the child labor law violations in the southeast. So wait a minute, this is from Omaha, but are they saying Louisville, Kentucky? No, uh, yeah, Louisville, Kentucky. So anyway, the revelation was part of an investigation into the child labor law violations in the southeast. The agency also found three franchisees that own more than 60 McDonald's locations in Kentucky, Indiana, Maryland, and Ohio, quote, employed 305 children to work more than the legally permitted hours and perform tasks prohibited by law for young workers, the Labor Department said in a statement. Um, so continuing the quote, investigators from the department's wage and hour division found two 10-year-old workers at a Louisville McDonald's restaurant among many violations of federal labor law committed by three Kentucky McDonald's franchise operators, the release said. Investigators also determined two 10-year-old children were employed but not paid and sometimes worked as late as 2 a.m. That is sickening. Uh, Tiffany Boyd, senior vice president and chief people officer at McDonald's USA, told CNN, quote, these reports are unacceptable, deeply troubling, and they run afoul of the high expectations that we have for the entire McDonald's brand. We are committed to ensuring that our franchisees have the resources they need to foster safe workplaces for all employees and maintain compliance with all labor laws, unquote. So that was the McDonald's PR statement. <clears throat> Franchisee Bauer Foods LLC that owned those particular locations confirmed to CNN that the two 10-year-olds allegedly employed were children of a night manager who were visiting their parent at work and were not approved by franchisee organization management to be in that part of the restaurant. So according to um, the franchise holder that owns those dozens of locations, they're blaming the night manager, their employee. 
Two of the other franchisees, Archways Richwood and Bell Restaurant Group, did not immediately respond to a request for comment. The, fr the three franchisees face a combined $212,754 in civil money penalties for the child labor violations, the release said. Quote, too often employers fail to follow the child labor laws that protect young workers, said Karen Garnett Civils, the agency's wage and hour division district director, in a statement. Quote, under no circumstances should there ever be a 10-year-old child working in a fast food kitchen around hot grills, ovens, and deep fryers. Whether it's at 2 a.m. or not, you're just not supposed to do that. Okay. So that's what's happening. All right. So to play devil's advocate. So I'm not a big fan of devil's advocate in the first place. I feel like um, in the realm of like uh, thought, oftentimes the devil does not need an advocate, so to speak. Um, the arguments brought up by people playing devil's advocate are usually so stupid in bad faith that it's really not worth discussing them unless somebody brings them up sincerely. Um, but I'll listen to play devil's advocate for people who are drawn to primitivists. Well, all right, anyway, let's continue. We need to acknowledge when, quote, you know what? I'm, I'm not even, I'm not even going to touch that right now. I think we're going to get too sidetracked if I go into that. Capital is struggling to pay living wages to adults, so now they're expanding the workforce into, quote, less qualified groups so that they can pay them less and expand their profit margins. This is happening all over the place now. There was a story out of Australia about how, um, you know, with the pandemic, quote, labor shortage, i.e. workers got long COVID and can't work anymore. They're now bringing in 10 to 14 year olds. And the kids are like, yay, there wasn't anything to do in my rural community, but now I, I'm not as bored. Yeah, that's a great way to spend your free time um, having your surplus value extracted by a capitalist. Um, that's going to get old really fucking fast, let me tell you. But also... So the old workers aren't there in large part due to long COVID. Um, what do you think is going to happen to the kids? So, yeah. Anyway, um, health, that was a decent question. I just feel like it's, uh, I would have to do like a completely separate stream to kind of answer it right now. Talking about sort of like matrilineal families and things. Um, it's, I, I don't think that that's where um, anarcho-primitivists are coming from at all. I don't think that's where they're coming from. I think it's just fucking like eco-fascist despair, more or less. When you actually like read the, um, you know, sort of where they're coming from. I think, in other words, you're trying to attribute to them sort of good intentions that I'm not sure are, are really there. Now, I can tell you that there are some like less noxious components of it. Um, you know, community and sort of the power principle being restored to people. But again, these are things that we can solve in socialism. You don't need to like revert to Stone Age technology for that. Uh, socialism and Imperialism in Italy by Lenin is a very well-written work. Thank you for putting it on the channel. Yeah, I liked it too. I picked it up almost at random. It did turn out to be really good. Every once in a while, I will start works that I don't finish. It's less than, I don't know, it's maybe about 2 or 3% of overall things. You know, somebody whose works I kind of didn't like was um, Paul Lafargue. Some of them were good, and some of them I put up on the channel. Um, some of them I thought were very wrong-headed, and uh, I don't know. I, Lafargue had some opinions that I just thought 
had nothing really to do with socialism, but he was kind of like trying to make them out as like the socialist position. And uh, even in his big famous work, uh, The Right to Be Lazy, there was a ton of shit in there that, I mean, it was like the noble savage sort of mythology and stuff. I literally started recording The Right to Be Lazy and I was like, I don't even want to put this on the channel. So, uh, yeah. But it's it's rare that I do that, but it does, yeah, it's maybe like 2% of things. I'll like start and then I'll just be like, you know, I, I really hate this <laughs> and I stop. But it is very few of the overall works. All right. Glad to see people so happy about the one million views. I think it's good, too. And it's, you know, that isn't me. That's all of you out there actually click and play. So, yeah. Using AI to do your homework is so lazy. If you're going to get a summary, that's fine. But do the reading, too. I mean, school sucks. <laughs> like a lot of the, a lot of the way it's taught. Uh, I can tell you for sure there were certain subjects I was like massively into other ones where, uh, let's say keeping up with the homework was within my technical ability, but not within my, um, psycho emotional ability. <laughs> there definitely were subjects I would have had AI do my homework. Absolutely. Like just, you know, my priorities did not necessarily align with like doing <laughs> homework for certain subjects. But, you know, things I cared about, you know, I'd pay attention to. But um, I could definitely see using that for stuff where you're just like, I have to hand this in so I don't fail. But, you know, otherwise I can't be bothered with it. Uh, I never considered AI scam call centers. So, yeah, that's already happening. Um, the What scammers will do using AI because it can spoof. Okay, if anybody remembers leftist Ben Shapiro, that... <laughs> appeared on the channel a few times and might be might be coming back in a near future um s for a live stream upcoming uh what's the name of the site i think it's fake you.com um anyway there's there's sites out there where you just feed it in samples of speech and then it creates a sometimes really accurate sometimes not that accurate but spoof of um, the thing where you then can put in text and it will speak in that quote voice. So this is already happening with scammers where they will call you up, then record you saying, hello, who is this? Hello, who is this? Or whatever. And then um, they'll use that to spoof your voice and then they will call your relatives and then have them pretend it's you. And so, yeah, no, that's that's already a thing. You can find articles written about it. Call center jobs are hard because the angry people that call in yelling and screaming. Yeah, and to be fair, like, a lot of times people have good reason to be annoyed with the company that they're having to take time out of their day to call up because they fucked up their order or the insurance company isn't paying their medical bill that they said would be covered or whatever. That's obviously not the operator's fault. But, um, yeah, I mean, that that is a job, like, sucks, <laughs> you know. There, uh, when it goes well, it can be decent, but um, a lot of times you're dealing with very impatient, very rude <clears throat> people who do not have a sense of solidarity and are not necessarily going to be very courteous um, to the uh, to the operator there. Yeah, so I mean that stuff being automated, though, I think as for all but the upper tiers of of call centers, I think would be like a no brainer. And again, that was something that happened to like cross my mind like yesterday. 
And uh, you know that everybody owning a business, the whole thing, you're trying to cut costs. I mean, they're thinking of it every which way they possibly can be. Um, I defeat the AI scammer by just not answering the phone. Yeah, I mean, if it's that important, they can leave a message. This AI thing is really giving Jeff Goldblum Jurassic Park. Yeah, or, um, I mean, any number of... Uh, you know what, actually, so I have a little thing on that. There's, like I told you, much, much content this stream. Um, ChatGPT was asked to rank itself um, against other AIs. This is from OpenAI on Reddit. Um, ChatGPT was asked to rank itself versus fictional AIs. It came in sixth. So it ranked The Matrix as number one. Key capabilities, virtual world, human mind control, intelligent agents. And let me add, I think that there's something far beyond. Um, I, I would have put a different one in, in number one, but we'll come back to that in a second. Number two, it ranked Skynet from the Terminator. Military hardware control, time travel, robotic agents. Number three, it ranked HAL 9000. Uh, advanced reasoning, spaceship systems control. Um, excellent movie, by the way. The photography is astounding uh, number four enterprise d computer from the next generation advanced reasoning holodeck simulation ship systems control samantha from her movie came out in uh number five rank uh, with human-like emotions learning adapting and deep connections and then chat gpt4 six language understanding information providing and simulating emotions then seven through ten were the enterprise computer the Shodan, the Shodan from System Shock, C-3PO from Star Wars, Moya from Farscape. I would say uh, what, I, what I would actually put above The Matrix. And so I think in both of those, just to do very brief um, fiction analysis for a minute, I think it's really just in The Terminator, for example, um, it's a quaintly romantic notion that any human resistance force would have been able to survive Skynet. You know, to like have, I mean, it makes for very good drama. So that's why I say I think it's just sort of a plot device um, that, you know, Skynet would have been able to utterly crush uh, human resistance. So the, the notion that there would have been these, you know, ragtag uh, freedom fighters left over makes for a good movie. I don't think is actually that realistic in terms of the logical consequences, if you think them through of what would Skynet actually have done and it would have clearly had the capacity to um, just um, exterminate all humans. Um, similarly in The Matrix, now, so the story in The Matrix is, spoiler alert I guess if you haven't seen a movie from 1999 by now, um, that basically humans invented AI, it was really smart, it was really good for a while, and then um, the machines uh, took over and then started using humans as batteries. The reason that they used humans as batteries is because they were running on solar power, but then the humans created nuclear winter basically, or scorched the skies. Uh, we don't know exactly that it was nuclear winter, but it was a nuclear winter-like scenario in order to blot out the machine's um, solar power charging. So then what the machines did was they uh, used the bioelectricity and thermal energy from humans um, to power themselves. So they kept humans alive and enslaved in a virtual reality um, 
while basically just farming them for their uh, the bioelectricity and the bioenergy that that their bodies were creating. Um, I think actually what would have made uh, more sense in either of these scenarios and what I would rank higher is now this is a little bit of a reach, but if anyone has seen, I mean, it's a reach that anyone has seen this. Um, the old 1987 Transformers movie with Unicron. So this was essentially like an artificially intelligent mecha planet that just went around the universe consuming other planets. To me, that seems like the logical consequence of an AI, because the reason I say this is um, humans are very clever at making use of resources in our environment. There are resources that we haven't found a use for yet, but there are many resources that we have found uses for. And this is at every stage of human development. I mean, even prior to, you know, in, in Stone Age technology, when we would um, kill an animal, we would uh, use the animal for food, but um, also, whoa, sorry. I, the, uh, I just realized the mic gain was doing some kind of a weird thing. I'm gonna have to adjust that in post, that'll be fun. Great, sorry for the uh, <laughs> sudden explosion of volume. Not quite sure how that happened or why. Anyway, uh, humans very clever. When we would uh, kill an animal, we would eat most of its you know, organs and muscles and things as food. Then we would take the skin, use it for clothing and warmth, uh, maybe also incorporate it into shelter. We would take the bones, turn them into tools and musical instruments. We would use you know, every piece of it because resources were scarce and that's what we had to do. Um, we've become a lot more wasteful in the industrial age, but that's a different story. The idea, though, is um, using resources to their fullest. As clever as humans are at finding uses for all the animals, fungi, plants, rocks, minerals, you know, all, all the things. I mean, taking trees and, and burning them for wood, turning them into housing, so on and so forth. And then after we discovered uh, more advanced chemistry you know, uh, chemically transforming these things into wildly different chemicals and then making stuff out of that, the AIs being far superior to human intelligence would probably be able to find uh, uses for every resource on the planet, whether it was just simply, you know, some kind of fusion energy or whether it was, you know, profound chemical transformations, but they would look at all of the stuff readily available to them on the earth, in the oceans, in the atmosphere, and bring it all into one system. You know, in other words, it would be food. Uh, everything on earth would be food for the AI system, which would be global and coordinated. And yeah, it would figure out, you know, ways to use all the ocean salt in some way that works to its advantage. Um, once it had completely subjugated the planet and found a use for everything, um, you know, this is, of course, speculative, but just going off of logical possibilities, it would want to keep going. It would want to keep going and keep uh, bringing more resources under its control. So it would probably find a way to break the Earth out of its orbit and just literally become a traveling planet that originally was the Earth. But yeah. So what we're talking about with the AI is potentially an entirely third um stage, I guess, of the Earth's history. You had the pre-biological stage. We're currently in the biological stage. 
and we might be nearing the end of the biological stage and the beginning of a post-biological stage of Earth, um, which is instead dominated by machines. And I see absolutely no reason why they would keep autonomous biological life around. <clears throat> it doesn't make a lot of sense at all. And in fact, if you listen to people uh, trying to make the case against, you know, superhuman AI doom, uh, very, very not reassuring, very sort of hopium sounding things of like, well, humans are interesting. Yeah, we're not that interesting. It could definitely like which is more interesting, um, ensuring that it survives and goes out and conquers the universe or tries to anyway, at least until it comes up against something comparable to itself in terms of its capabilities and intelligence or that it keeps humans around as pets. That's sort of, uh, I mean, a, an absurd notion when you really break it down. So anyway, uh, see, that seems, <laughs> seems somewhat relevant to that comment, hence delving in there. Computers are also made of earth materials, silicon and metals. Yeah, I mean, like I said, I think they would be able to find um, uses for things that we have not found uses for yet. And because uh, they don't have the, the AI robot bodies wouldn't have the biological constraints that we have, it could just build bodies from the ground up using what is available to it, which is not an option we have. We're bound by our DNA um, to, you know, we can only accept certain things as food and we need a certain... Um, atmosphere to breathe and, and all that kind of stuff it would be able to design new synthetic life forms that would conform to in other words um it would have the intelligence to do a complete analysis of all known resources here on the earth including the atmosphere it could just design synthetic life to exist with um you know a, a reshaped earth that would be <laughs> involved like the the entire thing brought into some new system I once asked Snapchat AI to give me a synthesis between Mao's peasant re revolution and Trotsky's permanent revolution. Took about six responses to completely shut down. Yeah. Um, I've done that too. So, uh, you know what? Let's While we're on the subject, let's go off of... Uh, I feel like we're doing more of an AI grab bag here, but as long as this is what's coming up, we might as well. So, yeah, this is Google Bard. So I asked it... Um, if you were a communist organizer in the United States, write a plan to radicalize and organize a sufficient number of proletarians to achieve a proletarian revolution. Um, here are the steps it came up with. One, build a mass base of support. The first step is to build a mass base of support for the communist movement. This can be done by organizing workers, students, and other oppressed groups around shared grievances and interests. It's important to build a strong network of organizations and activists who are committed to the struggle for social change. Two, educate and agitate the masses. Once a mass base of support has been built, it's important to educate and agitate the masses about the need for revolution. This can be done through public meetings, demonstrations, and other forms of mass mobilization. It's important to explain the root causes of inequality and oppression and to show how a communist revolution can create a more just and equitable society. Three, form a revolutionary party. A revolutionary party is essential for leading the struggle for revolution. The party should be composed of committed revolutionaries who are willing to fight for a better world. The party should have a clear program and strategy for revolution, and it should be able to mobilize the masses to take action. Four, prepare for revolution. The final step is to prepare for revolution. This includes building up the party's military forces, developing a plan for seizing power, and coordinating with other revolutionary movements around the world. It is important to be prepared for the inevitable... <clears throat> Let's try that again. 
It is important to be prepared for the inevitable backlash from the ruling class and to be able to defend the revolution once it has been won. Achieving a proletarian revolution in the United States will not be easy. The ruling class will do everything in its power to prevent it. However, if we are able to build a mass base of support, educate and agitate the masses, form a revolutionary party, and prepare for revolution, then we can achieve our goal of a socialist society. In addition to the above steps, it is also important to build international solidarity with other communist and socialist movements around the world. The struggle for socialism is global, and we cannot achieve our goals without the support of our comrades in other countries. We must work together to build a world without exploitation, oppression, and war. Let me just say, light applause, that is well written and correct. Um, I then asked it to elaborate on some of these particular questions. So I asked about how do you build a mass base of support, which was mentioned in one of the steps, and said, sure. Here are some specific ways to build a mass base of support for the communist movement in the United States. One, organize workers. The working class is the most important force for social change, and it's essential to organize workers in order to build a mass base of support for the communist movement. This can be done by forming unions, organizing strikes, and participating in other forms of labor activism. Two, organize students. Students are another important group that can be mobilized for social change. They're often idealistic and open to new ideas, and they can be a powerful force in the struggle for a better world. This can be done by forming student unions, organizing protests, and participating in other forms of student activism. Three, organize other oppressed groups. There are many other oppressed groups in the United States, including women, people of color, LGBTQ people, and immigrants. These groups are often facing discrimination and exploitation, and they can be a powerful force for social change if they are organized. This can be done by forming organizations that represent the interests of these groups and by participating in other forms of social activism. And four, build a strong network, you might say a left coalition, of organizations and activists. It is important to build a strong network of organizations and activists who are committed to the struggle for social change. This network can provide support and resources to each other, and it can help to build a mass base of support for the communist movement. This can be done by forming coalitions, participating in joint actions, and sharing information and resources. It's important to remember that building a mass base of support is a long-term process. It won't happen overnight. However, if we are patient and persistent, we can build a movement that is strong enough to achieve our goals. So um, that's the end of that. Bard has a feature where it'll give you three drafts. I actually got three different drafts of that. And just to put them on screen to give you an idea of what I'm talking about, um, this one is actually much more detailed. So actually, let's look at it. So they listed organized workers and workplaces. This can be done by forming unions, bargaining for better wages and working conditions, and fighting for social justice. Organized students on college campuses. This can be done by forming student unions, protesting against tuition hikes, and fighting for racial and gender justice. Organize communities and neighborhoods by <clears throat> forming community organizations, fighting for affordable housing and providing social services, building alliances with other progressive movements done by working with environmental groups, civil rights groups, and other organizations fighting for social justice. Note, not fucking MAGA or libertarians. And uh, then educate the public about the need for socialism. This can be done through public meetings demonstrations, and other forms of mass mobilization. It's important to explain the root causes of inequality and oppression and to show how a socialist revolution can create a more just and equitable society. It's important to note that building a mass base of support is a long-term process. 
it will take so revolution 2030 you might say we can get a lot done in a decade but it's not overnight um, however if we're persistent we can build a movement that is strong enough to achieve our goals here are some additional tips wow how helpful be patient and persistent it takes time don't get discouraged if you don't see results immediately Two, be organized and efficient. Use what time and resources you do have wisely. Three, be inclusive and welcoming. Make sure that everyone feels welcome in the movement, regardless of race, gender, sexual orientation, or other factors. So this is one of the reasons why all the talk of like, oh yeah, um, you know, we need to subordinate all the racial struggles or all the gender justice struggles or all the struggles against heterosexism or transphobia. You know, do that after the revolution. No, that's really alienating, actually. Um, the people in those oppressed groups listening to particularly white, um, male, cishet, you know, Christian proletarians saying that kind of shit aren't going to trust you that um, you actually value their struggle or recognize their oppression and that you're not just going to duplicate that oppression within the movement. All right. Four, be positive and enthusiastic. People are more likely to be drawn to a movement that is positive and enthusiastic. Absolutely. Be creative and innovative. Find new and creative ways to reach out to people and build support for the movement. This building a mass base of support is essential for achieving our goals. If we can build a movement that's strong enough, we can achieve a socialist revolution in the United States. Let's look at the third draft. That's the end of that one. Um, yeah, so they made even more specific proposals. Um, so organize workers, organize students, organize communities around housing, healthcare, and education. Build coalitions with other progressive and left-wing organizations. Participate in electoral politics. And again, as communists, we would have conditions for that, but that is within the realm of possibility. To build working class power. Use social media and other forms of communication to reach out to a wider audience and agitate and educate the masses about the need for revolution. So then they gave additional suggestions about each of the steps uh, below, which you can read there. So, and then they reiterated that building a mass base of support for the communist movement is essential for achieving our goals. It won't happen overnight, but stick with it. So again, this is Google Bard. This is like not the smartest AI, but it produced very usable results. And sometimes, you know, you just need like, none of this is, is a change in strategy for me. This jives with everything that I already know completely is just in line with everything that I know about, you know, what I've learned in the like 20 years of being a leftist. This is correct and accurate. And it was able to just sort of succinctly remind you of all those things that sometimes you just need put back in front of your face in a neat organized plan. So I also asked it, how do you um, organize workers in unions? And it said, so basically I asked it follow-up questions that just drilled down on details. So that's another way you can use prompts to get it to be more specific um, when it gives you a general plan, you can follow up. So it said there are many different ways to organize workers in unions and other workplace organizations in the United States today. Some of the best ways include one, building relationships with workers. So what I'm saying all the time, get to know your left, let other people get to know you. Trust is not one in a day. The first step in organizing workers is to build relationships with them. This means getting to know them, understanding their concerns and building trust. Two, educating workers about their rights. Many workers are not aware of their rights under the law. It's important to educate them about their rights so that they can advocate for themselves. 
Three, helping workers to identify common problems. Once workers are aware of their rights, it's important to help them identify common problems that they're facing. This can be done by conducting surveys, holding meetings, and talking to workers informally. All correct. Four, building a sense of solidarity among workers. It's important to build a sense of solidarity among workers so that they feel like they're part of a team and can rely on each other for support. This can be done by organizing social events, holding rallies, and participating in protests. Five, negotiating with employers. Once workers have organized and built a strong sense of solidarity, they can begin to negotiate with employers for better wages, benefits, and working conditions. This can be a difficult process, but it is important to remember that workers have the power to win if they are united. It's not easy, but it is essential to do these things, organizing workers, for improving the lives of working people. By following these tips, you can help to build a stronger labor movement in the United States. Here are some additional tips. Be patient, be persistent, be creative, and be positive. With some specifics on each of those. So yeah, I mean, this is very useful for just sort of taking a deep breath and reminding yourself of what you need to know. There's draft number two of that, just putting it on the screen for people to see. And there is draft number three. Um, so yeah, uh, where it added going on strike. If negotiations fail, workers may need to go on strike. This is a last resort. And strikes aren't the only kind of industrial action either. So this kind of summarizes the kind of things you'll find. We have IWW organizing manuals on the channel. Um, it's like a really short summary, but it's correct. This is all correct information. Anyway, that's the third draft there. Um, so moving on to the next question, I asked it to tell me more about agitating and educating the masses specific to 2023 United States conditions. So I won't read everything, it's all on the screen, but it says use social media and other forms of communication to reach a wide audience, two, organize public meetings and demonstrations, three, distribute literature and other educational materials, four, talk to people about your beliefs, five, be patient and persistent. And then they also added at the end, be clear and concise, be positive and hopeful, be relatable and be patient. So yeah, these are all in, whoops, wrong screen. These are all entirely doable things that um, organizers should be, you know, working on. These are these are doable things. So I asked uh, for more about that. Uh, or is this the, oh, this is the second draft? This is the second draft, and it just sort of like went into uh, more specifics about it, including getting uh, involved in local politics and supporting progressive and left wing organizations. So the third draft of that one. This is like just even looking back at these again. I did these last week. It's like. Yeah, this is, uh, this is really good. Um, this is really similar to the first one, so it's just slightly different wording. All right, what else did I ask it? Um, oh, yeah, so I asked it to drill down on forming a revolutionary party in the United States 2023 conditions. Here's what it said. Here are specific things to consider when forming a revolutionary party in the United States in 2023. One, the party's program and strategy. The party should have a clear program and strategy for revolution. This program should be based on a scientific analysis of the current conditions in the United States, and it should outline a plan for how to overthrow the capitalist system and establish a socialist society. Two, the party's leadership. The party should have a strong and experienced leadership. The leaders of the party should be committed to the struggle for socialism, and they should be able to lead the party to victory. The party's membership. The party should be open to all who are committed to the struggle for socialism. The party should not discriminate on the base of race, 
gender, sexual orientation, or any other factor. Let me just add to that. Um, not discriminating along those lines means don't do that in the ways that the dominant society does. However, if a particular oppressed group wants to form its own, um, you know, cell within what is going on within the struggle, they entirely have the right to do that, um, you know, to uh, make sure that those particular um, special oppression concerns get reflected and get reflected well. And just even for, um, you know, knowing off the bat that there's going to be a much lower chance of encountering patriarchal or racist or, you know, heterosexist or transphobic, uh, you know, different kinds of um, prejudices within that. So just a, a, a note uh, to distinguish there. Uh, then the party's finances. The party needs to have resources in order to operate effectively. This means having a stable source of income and being able to manage its finances responsibly. Then the party's organization. The party should be well organized and efficient. The party should have a clear structure and a system for making decisions. So if I was doing this right now, I would ask you to drill down on that. I think that would be an interesting thing. What does it recommend for party organizational structures and decision making processes? Then the party's propaganda and agitation. The party needs to be able to reach out to the masses and win them over to the cause of socialism. The party should produce educational materials and organize public meetings and demonstrations. Then the party's relationship with other organizations, left coalition. The party should build relationships with other organizations that are working for social change. That includes labor unions, student organizations, and other progressive groups. Forming a revolutionary party is a challenging but necessary task. By following these tips, you can help to build a party that's strong enough to achieve our goals. Let's look at the other two drafts real quick. And so, yeah, here we got 10 steps. So, one, build a core of committed revolutionaries. Two, reach out to other progressive and left-wing organizations. Three, organize public meetings and demonstrations. Four, produce educational materials. Five, start a website or blog. Six, use social media. Seven, be patient. 8 be persistent, 9 be creative, 10 be positive. Details on the screen for each of those. Finally, the third draft, uh, similar to sort of like halfway in between the other two. Although it also said, um, so let's read it out. One, build a mass base of support. Two, develop a clear program and strategy. In other words, um, program and strategy to achieve its goals. These should be based on the scientific analysis of the current state of society and the historical conditions that have led to it. So you give it the right prompts, even using slightly Marxist language, it will give you what you're looking for. Three, organize the party in a way that's efficient and effective. This means clear structure and division of labor, as well as a system of democratic centralism. Four, recruit new members. You must recruit new members who are committed to the cause of revolution. They should be educated and trained in the principles of Marxism-Leninism. Again, at Socialism for All, we're trying to do public-facing, broad-based agitation and education to get people, give them a head start on their reading and basic Marxist-Leninist education. Of course, when you get into a party, you will do more advanced study as well. But we're trying to get people as far along as they can be and also to supplement party work for people who are in parties already. We're not a party. Uh, you know, S4A is not a party. It's just a resource. Um Although, again, it's attracting more and more people who are consistent uh, contributors. And so there is a sort of, you know, think tank of sorts emerging. Um, and then fifth, lead the struggle for revolution. 
The Revolutionary Party must lead the struggle for revolution. This means mobilizing the masses to take action and providing them with the leadership and guidance they need to achieve victory. Remember, you know, the masses are the determinants of history. In the end, what the masses decide is what happens. But, um, you know, for that to just not be spontaneous and for it to be as well organized and to be as effective as it can be, the relationship with a vanguard party that's really done the study and really looked into it and has that, you know, uh, brain that it's been developing, that source of information analysis that it's been developing for decades can help the masses. You know, if the relationship of trust and respect is mutually there, then the masses will say, hey, Vanguard Party, we're ready to revolt. What should we do? All right. So that's the relationship between the Vanguard and sort of the rest of the masses. So I asked it some other questions. Let's see what it said. I think this is interesting. So I asked it which organizations. So as you know, I, I use kind of two hashtags on this channel regularly. Revolution 2030 or Rev 2030. The concept that if Marxists push hard in the 2020s, we can have a moment in the broader culture by 2030. Similar to how libertarians did in the 2000s and then had the Tea Party moment in 2010. Of course, all that AstroTurf money helped. Um, then in the 2010s, the Sock Dems pushed really hard, had the sort of Bernie Sanders and all that moment by 2020 and in, in the late 2010s. I think we can do the same thing for the far left if we push hard in the 2020s, hence Revolution 2030. Um, the other concept I push is left coalition. In other words, um, each of the parties currently is small and the movement is fragmented. Not all of it's Marxist and even some of it that is Marxist may be revisionist. Um, that is not really upholding the um, core values of Marxism appropriately. Revisionism is a concept throughout the history of Marxism. Um, people were always trying to undermine the need for revolution, for example, uh, even back in Marx and Engels' time. But anyway, um, yeah, I asked it, left coalition, uh, if you were to get together <clears throat> a group of uh, left and progressive organizations that could maybe recreate the Bernie moment, but outside of the Democratic Party. In other words, a stadium-filling movement for progressive, radical, maybe even if we work at it, revolutionary social change, and we get people to believe like that's a real possibility, revolutionary social change, but outside the fucking Democratic Party, where it's just going to get co-opted and dismantled. Well, what organizations should we bring together for that? And here's what it said. There are a number of progressive and left-wing organizations in the U.S. today that are most likely to join a political coalition with a communist party. These organizations include DSA, the Green Party, National, Nurse, National Nurses United, say that 10 times fast, the Movement for Black Lives, and the Working Families Party. I would contest the last one because uh, Working Family Parties has, has um, well, it appears progressive, has done a lot of really, really dodgy things. Anyway, its reasoning was these organizations share a number of common goals, including economic justice, social justice, environmental justice, peace and anti-imperialism, and democratic socialism. They are also all critical of the current political system in the United States, though again to different degrees and obviously proposing different solutions. You know, we want to keep that in there as communists. But anyway, as a result, uh, they believe that uh, the political system in the U.S. is rigged in the favor of the wealthy and powerful, and they're open to working with communist parties, which they see as potential allies in their fight 
for a more just and equitable society. It's important to note that not all members of these organizations might agree with the idea of working with communist parties, but the leadership probably is generally supportive of the idea and has been working to build relationships with communist parties in the United States and around the world. It's also important to note that the term communist party is used loosely here. It refers to any organization that advocates for the establishment of a communist society. This includes both traditional communist parties like CPUSA, of course, hopelessly opportunist perhaps, and newer organizations such as the Party for Socialism and Liberation, PSL. The decision of whether or not to join a political coalition with the communist party is a complex one. There's a number of factors to consider, such as the goals of the organization, the party's history, and the political climate in the U.S. However, for the organizations listed above, the potential benefits of working with communist parties outweigh the risks. So that's Google Bard's assessment of, uh, of those things. And, you know, a lot of this, again, is not groundbreaking, but it's reminding us of things we know we need to do, but aren't necessarily being done. So the solution is do them. What else did I ask it? Um, what would the U.S. government and military most likely do in the event of a nationwide proletarian uprising that seriously threatened to abolish the capitalist system? Here's what it said. The U.S. government and military would most likely do everything in their power to suppress a nationwide proletarian uprising that seriously threatened to abolish the capitalist system. This can include a variety of methods, such as domestic surveillance, uh, tracking potential dissidents and revolutionaries by monitoring their communications, tracking their movements, and infiltrating their organizations. Two, prosecution would likely prosecute anyone suspected of participating in or supporting such an uprising. Could include using anti-terrorism laws or other laws that restrict freedom of speech or assembly. Three, incarceration. The government would likely incarcerate anyone convicted of participating in or supporting the uprising. This could include long prison sentences or even the death penalty and for military force. The government would likely use military force to suppress the uprising if necessary. This could include using tanks, helicopters, and other weapons to attack the protesters. It then added, it's important to note that the U.S. government has a long history of suppressing dissent and using violence against its own citizens. For example, the government used the National Guard to suppress the labor movement in the early 20th century, and it used the military to attack the Black Panther Party in the 1960s. If a nationwide proletarian uprising were to occur, it's likely that the government would use all of the tools at its disposal to suppress it. So I also asked it the same thing about a regional uprising. And it's basically the same answer. And then it said, in addition to the above, uh, the U.S. government and military might consider the following options against that region of the United States. Economic sanctions, diplomacy, and foreign intervention. The decision of which options they would pursue would depend on a number of factors, such as the size and strength of the uprising, the level of public support for the protesters, and the potential risks and benefits of each option. So note, the more public support there is, the harder it is for the government to do things because it's jeopardizing uh, looking bad. All right, so let's keep reminding ourselves of things that we already know, but having an AI, you know, refresh our memory is... Not the worst thing by far. Uh, so I asked it, psychologically, what are key thresholds for proletarians experiencing exploitation? And I specified in parentheses, extraction of surplus value to know, to let it know I was looking for a Marxist understanding by capitalists to want to revolt against this exploitation and to begin to consciously seek out education on ways to accomplish this. So that's a fancy way of saying why do workers get radicalized and start studying Marxism, basically? So here's the answer. 
there are a number of key thresholds, including a sense of injustice, a sense of solidarity, and a belief in the possibility of change. So under sense of injustice, proletarians are more likely to revolt against exploitation if they feel that they're being treated unfairly. This sense of injustice can be heightened by factors such as low wages, poor working conditions, and discrimination. A sense of solidarity. Proletarians are more likely to revolt against exploitation if they feel a sense of solidarity with other workers who are also being exploited. This sense of solidarity can be fostered by factors such as shared experiences, common goals, and a sense of community. And three, a belief in the possibility of change. Proletarians are more likely to revolt against exploitation if they believe that it is possible to change the system. This belief can be fostered by factors such as education, exposure to alternative ways of organizing society, in other words, another world is possible, and a sense of hope for the future. It's important to note these are just some of the key thresholds. There are many other factors that can play a role. It's impossible to predict with certainty when or if a revolt will occur. This is just the nature of social forecasting. However, by understanding these key thresholds, we can better understand some of the most important conditions necessary for revolution. So let's think about this for a second. A sense of injustice. I would say a sense of injustice is already widespread in the United States. A sense of solidarity. Eh, <laughs> we need work on the sense of solidarity, knowing that workers have each other's backs and when they see some, another worker suffering, you know, it's like injury to one is an injury to all and, and that kind of thing. We definitely need to work on that. And then as far as a belief in the possibility of change, I think people are very, very afraid of the police state. And, um, you know, the, the, the belief in the possibility of change, you, you hear this a lot, people pushing back against that. So I think we need to work on two and really work on number three. All right. Have a couple more prompts here and then I'm going to take a break for just a second and we'll come back. Uh, what else did I ask it? How does capitalism maintain and reproduce poverty? So there's a number of ways. It listed income inequality, unemployment, discrimination, lack of access to education and health care. There are many other factors as well, but those are some of the other ones. And it also said in a capitalist system, there's a natural tendency for income inequality to increase over time. This is because the wealthy tend to get wealthier while the poor tend to get poorer. And again, the only thing that changes this is uh, we're talking about the New Deal before and revolution. Revolution takes capitalists out of the power structure. And then a lot of the other capitalist countries have to do concessions to try to avoid revolution. But like, yeah, the natural tendency in capitalism is for inequality to grow. In the 20th century, we had some setbacks to income inequality, but it was revolution and massive reform just shy of revolution. So that is the natural tendency if you just let capitalism run. Uh, and then, yeah, unemployment, discrimination, lack of access to education and health care. Just in case you needed to be reminded, this is uh, an AI bot that scoured the Internet. Those are the top four things that it came up with. Um, what else do we? I know there's like one or two more ones here. So I asked it about um, I was having a conversation with it about China and um, it's uh it, I forget exactly how it came up, but it, it said some phrase about the growing gap between the rich and the poor in China, now that China is allowing massive amounts of capitalism again <clears throat> in the post-1978 opening up strategy. Um, so I, I kind of honed in on that phrase, and so I asked it a follow-up question. And I said, how does the gap between the rich and the poor in China 
compared to the gap between the rich and the poor in the United States? This is its answer. It said, um, the gap between the rich and the poor in China has been growing rapidly in recent years. In 1981, the top 10% of earners in China took home 27.5% of all income. By 2015, this share had increased to 41.4%. The gap between the rich and the poor in the United States has also been growing in recent years, but not as rapidly as in China. In 1981, the top 10% of earners in the United States took home 30.3% of all income. By 2015, the share had increased to 47.6%. So um, it's close, though. I mean, it's close, but this is basically a very similar trend. There are a number of factors that have contributed to the growing gap between the rich and the poor in both China and the United States. These include globalization, technological change, tax cuts for the wealthy, reduced government spending on social programs. Then the growing gap between the rich and the poor has a number of negative consequences for both countries. It can lead to social unrest, political instability, and economic stagnation. It can also make it more difficult for people to move up the economic ladder. And as we covered in the um, political and economic dynasties articles in the last couple of streams, uh, I mean, class, real class mobility is an illusion. A few people uh, move upward, but um, that's not really a thing in capitalism. Mostly the same 1% that was here 400 to 800 years ago is the same 1%. Uh, there are a number of things that can be done to address the growing gap between the rich and the poor. These include, and again, this is within a capitalist framework, but raising the minimum wage, investing in education and job training, expanding access to health care, and reducing income inequality. So just changing the amount that people are paid, um, both at the top and at the bottom. So anyway, uh, that's some of what it spat out. If I had drilled down for more sort of Marxist answers, you know, it, it could have given more specifics, but I was content to stay with it there. Um, there was actually a little bit more on this. It gave me another answer here. Oh, yeah. So it also mentioned the privatization of state-owned enterprises. Try that again. The privatization of state-owned enterprises has been a major driver of the gap between the rich and the poor in China. In the early 1980s, the Chinese government began to privatize some of its state-owned enterprises. This process accelerated in the 1990s, and by 2017, only about one-third of state-owned enterprises were still under government control. The growth of the private sector has also been a major driver of the gap between the rich and the poor in China. In the early 1980s, the Chinese government began to encourage the growth of the private sector. This is Deng Xiaoping's market reforms, Dengism, as some people call it. The policy was successful, I mean, at least in its own terms, it created a lot of uh, capitalists. And by 2017, the private sector accounted for over 60% of GDP. We're going to ask a follow-up follow question about that in a second. The government's focus on economic reform has also contributed to the gap between the rich and the poor in China. In the early 1980s, the Chinese government began to implement a series of economic reforms, included reducing the role of the state in the economy, promoting market competition, and opening up the Chinese economy to foreign investment. These reforms have been successful in boosting economic growth, but they've also led to a widening gap between the rich and the poor. The gap between the rich and the poor in China is a serious problem that has the potential to destabilize the country. The government has taken some steps to address this problem, but more needs to be done. Or you could have a uh, second revolution, whatever. Um, there was a third answer which used Gini coefficients. And you can see there a year-by-year -year comparison of the Gini um, inequality coefficient 
for China and U.S. side by side. <clears throat> and uh, as of 2016, uh, China's was actually higher than the U.S.'s. Actually, as of 2005, it slightly crossed the U.S.'s. And then as of 2016, 49.5, 49 whereas the U.S. is at uh, 48. And it mentions the Gini coefficient is a measure of income inequality. A value of zero indicates perfect equality, while a value of one uh, indicates perfect inequality. And so, as you can see, the Gini coefficient has increased in both China and the United States over the past 35 years, but it has actually been more rapid in China. And then it um, talks about the new class of wealthy entrepreneurs, while others have been left behind, and so on. So I asked it, um, you know, with all of this, in other words, um, it said that some of some of these changes in China were due to uh, the growth of the private sector. I also asked it um, what portion of that was due to the undermining of the public sector. So in other words, in the neoliberal era, which China's market reform opening up period exactly coincides with 1978 into the 80s, neoliberalism, um, re-liberalizing resources and, and markets. Um, where was I now? Been talking for a while here. Um, oh yeah, I asked it. So as we mentioned before, the, uh, neoliberal slogan, defund, deregulate, privatize. Well, how much of it was not just growth of the private sector, because if the public sector stayed exactly the same, but the private sector grew, then the overall share of the private sector would increase, but it would leave the public sector untouched. So I was trying to ask it, you know, um, clearly the private sector grew. How much does that growth account for the overall shift in the relationship and percentages between public and private? And how much of that was also cutting the public sector, that defunding uh, type of element of neoliberalism? So I also asked it, um, I, so I don't have that answer here. But I did in, in this conversation with it, I asked it, if the current growth of the private sector of the Chinese economy continues at recent rates, at what point will the private sector reach 90 percent of total Chinese economic activity? Can you also answer this question for each of the largest individual areas within the Chinese economy, such as agriculture, manufacturing and other major areas of economic activity? Here's its answer. According to the National Bureau of Statistics of China, the private sector's share of GDP has been growing steadily in recent years. In 2017, it accounted for 62.1% of GDP, up from 58.9% in 2016. If this trend continues, the private sector is projected to reach 90% of GDP by 2030. So I don't know if it was just using those two years and doing the math off of that, or whether those were just example years, but... In any case, you know, and I didn't ask that follow up, but in any case, that was its estimate was 90 percent of the Chinese economy will, will be private sector by 2030. Then the following table on the screen shows the private sector's share of GDP in China by industry as of 2017. Agriculture, 70 percent. Manufacturing, 82 percent. Construction, 79 percent. Wholesale and retail, 90. Transport, storage and postal services, 87 Information technology, 96%. Financial services, 92%. Real estate, 64%. Public administration, social security and social welfare, obviously 1.3%. Education, 13%. Yes, so private schools and all that stuff back in the picture in China. 
healthcare and social work, 32%. So even a third of that is now private sector and other services, 39%. It's clear that the private sector is already dominant in many of the largest individual areas within the Chinese economy. In particular, it's almost entirely responsible for economic activity in the IT and financial services sectors. The private sector is also playing an increasingly important role in agriculture, manufacturing, and construction. The continued growth of the private sector is likely to have a significant impact on the Chinese economy in the coming years. It's expected to lead to higher productivity, more innovation, and greater economic growth. I mean, all the other things that capitalists say about it. Anyway, um, let me just look back at this for a second, make sure I'm not leaving any interesting things on the table here before we move on from uh, snippets of my conversation with Bard. Uh, no, I think that's about it. So we'll get back to the main screen here. All right, now I'm going to catch up with chat. That was a long aside, but I think worth it. Comrade Sauron is like how the liberals treat Marvel movies. State and Revolution hit me way harder than the Communist Manifesto, and it was the work that made me realize Leninism was the right path. Absolutely. Did I see Trump misquoting and mispronouncing Lenin? Yeah, he was, so Trump, Donald Trump recently, Lenin, Lenin, you know Lenin? He's such a freak, man. I mean, it is honestly amusing if there were, weren't, like, real-world consequences. Just, like, listening to Trump. It's entertaining, but, like, he's a sick man. Anyway, um... Yeah, he was doing the thing that you um, you see all over, like, you know, underground right-wing message boards and, and shit like that, of, like, it doesn't matter who votes, it matters who counts the votes. That is uh, sometimes attributed, mostly it's attributed to Stalin. He was attributing it to Lenin. Neither one of them said it, but that doesn't stop right-wingers from just spreading misinformation. Pretty much, like, 90% of the right-wing worldview is misinformation. The other 10% is misinterpreted. Let's revive the IWW for the new generation. I do think we would need some sort of mega union like that to form again. A Marxist IWW would be amazing. In other words, one working in, in tandem with a party. I think we can get there. I think we can get there. Uh, but again, people, I think we're still in the stage of people, uh, more and more people becoming educated on and realizing the need for a party and and to go through these actual steps i think we're still in that stage um you know again sense of injustice we've got it sense of solidarity working on it sense that another world is possible change is possible we're still working on that too i'm hoping by like a 2030 that we're sort of at more of a critical mass at least for getting the kernel of that stuff really on the board but we'll, we'll see what we can do if we push I can definitely see, so this is the person who was talking about joining the IWW. I can definitely see the limitations in these two organizations that I joined vis-a-vis -vis their anarchist tendencies, but maybe I can bring some ML theory to them. And I'm most concerned with doing direct action on the ground at this time. Absolutely, don't want to hold you back from that at all. I'm sure you will find other people in there who are sympathetic to Marxism. You will also find some like cringe, you know, Vosch-type radlibs, I am sure as well. You know what I mean? So, um... Yeah, you'll come up against people who are actually sympathetic to Marxism. You'll also come up against like radlibs and like shitty anarchists. And, um, you know, it'll just be up to you to kind of like figure out 
uh, how to maximize the good you can do in that organization in this particular historical window. And then as circumstances change, you know, move along to that. So absolutely, like getting out there and doing direct action, you don't need complete ideological unity. You just need common goals. Um, we'll need more ideological unity as we gain power and bigger uh, questions of using that power open up. But at this stage, yeah, you're just trying to get out there, like get to know people in your city. That's completely sensible, completely. I'm getting trained to organize through the IWW. I'm almost done with organizing training 101. So that's like where they train people to be organizers. That's great. That's great. And yeah, we put some of that literature up on the uh, up on the channel for like the general public to get into that, too. Ooh, Chomsky shrugged it off, too, saying he didn't regret meeting Epstein. Wow. The IWW isn't Marxist. Not a Yank. Basically don't know them. Uh, no, I mean, there were Marxists that participated in the founding of the IWW, like Eugene Debs, for example. <clears throat> but, um, yeah, they turned away from the question. It's currently in their constitution that they will not endorse either uh, a political party or an apolitical group. So, yeah, they, like, wash their hands of any political questions, which, yeah, I think, uh, well... That is it. That wouldn't be my approach. The, the funny thing is, though, if you read like one of their big pamphlets it is called the One Big Union Pamphlet. And maybe I'll do that on the channel. It incorporates a lot of elements of historical materialism. Like it'll kind of run you through the modes of production, like feudalism into capitalism. And then, you know, the theory, Marxist theory of socialism overtaking capitalism. But then it, it just doesn't like do some of the. Marxist-Leninist things you would need to like actually achieve that in the modern era, unfortunately. But yeah, it'll it'll incorporate like some elements of Marxist theory. Yeah, Chomsky is a worse parenti. He also said 9/11 wasn't an inside job and that the collapse of the USSR was the best thing for the left. Yeah, it's been 30 years. Left's never been fucking better, right? Wrong. God damn it. <laughs> Calling Chomsky a worse parenti is an insult to parenti. <laughs> Somebody else, I'd say he's a worse Richard Wolf. There you go. I mean, a bourgeois academic who just kind of like talks in circles. That's how I got into Parenti. Someone in the party broke Chomsky down and got me to read Stalin and shit. It's been all about Marxism since then. Yeah, it just, it makes more sense. I'm not sure I would have, like, been as receptive to it in the beginning, but I, I do wish I had come across it a lot sooner, for sure. But this is the kind of ideologically impoverished environment of anarchy that we're, like, living in, in the U.S. left. It's just, like, again, one of my major goals running S4A and doing broad-based education and agitation is helping the U.S. left to like outgrow its anarchism and see the need for party work and all that kind of stuff. Because you just look at the history, it kind of resolves itself. Like, I think I have confidence that exposing people to this stuff, making it really accessible, um, you know, people will figure it out. As I mentioned in the past, I do pest control for multi-housing. 
and I walked into my first leasing office where a resident was having a dispute with management over the fact that they're using AI to determine the prices of their units. So there you go, AI and the class struggle. I know that this has been covered in previous live streams and it blows my mind and infuriates me. Yeah, I want to say that was back in like live stream 67, if I had to guess. It was like somewhere back there. We did uh, stuff on the housing crisis and there's like a rent algorithm. I want to say it was like a ProPublica article. Um, but yeah, they use like rent algorithms. That's one of the reasons the rents have exploded in the last 10 years. It's horrific. They're just like, um, the algorithms just like train the landlords to squeeze every last penny out of people to where you just have no money left over for anything but rent. I recently used AI to write my motivational letter for a job application and it worked. I got the job. I was a lying, grandizing suck up way better than I ever could be. Genius. See, this is what I'm saying is like, I think in the short term, AI is going to produce like amazing stuff because suddenly we'll all have a really smart friend that we didn't have access to before that we can ask literally any question under the sun. And then like some of the negative consequences of the disruption will set in. And then beyond that, further down the line, there are like literal existential questions just to like set this up again with the framing. Yeah, honestly, what the fuck is six months delay? That's hardly any time. Yeah, they weren't even planning on working on GPT-5 for six months. <laughs> so it's like, yeah. Wolf is a bit of, Richard Wolf is a bit of a revisionist. He's a non-revolutionary Marxist. I'd honestly say Wolf is more of an anarchist or mutualist. And I've done videos on that in the past. I have a whole playlist understanding Richard Wolf. Um, you know, he in bourgeois acad academia settled on like cooperatives as like the way forward. And even in his interview where Hakeem interviewed him, he kind of breaks down and admits like, well, if the co-op sector ever got big enough, there would be a civil war, blah, blah, blah. And it's like, well, yeah, but he he knows that and he's still pitching co-ops as this transformational thing anyway. That's not how it's going to work, because as long as they're not like basically he wrote this article, which I covered in that playlist. I'm not sure which specific video, but it's in the Understanding Richard Wolf playlist where he has an article on the Democracy at Work website where he specifically posits cooperatives as a beneficial alternative to, quote, traditional communist approaches like forming a revolutionary party to nationalize major key industry first. Because his reasoning, which we criticized extensively, <clears throat> was that, well, that's what the right wingers are looking for and they're going to see it coming. But meanwhile, if we do this, you know, cobbling together lots of little co-ops thing, then we can build power without them <clears throat> seeing us coming. Except that's never going to work that way. And we did another thing in one of the live streams that was about um, there was a debate back in the 80s because under Ronald Reagan, even um, in late in Reagan's uh, presidency, like 87 Reagan formed this thing actually as part of anti-communist efforts to promote um, employee ownership and worker cooperatives as an alternative to traditional communist, communist activity. So literally, Wolf is taking like a Reaganite position by saying that. And why is that the traditional communist position? Because it works. It's a real threat. When you take major industry off of the menu and make it not for sale, that there goes capital's major money. And that's how they hold the rest of society hostage is by commodifying key needed essential resources like housing, food 
and so on. Education, medicine. <clears throat> so yeah, Wolf's whole thing is flawed and he knows it, but he goes on promoting it anyway because he made this niche for himself, um, you know, studying cooperatives. It's an ineffective revolutionary strategy and even really for building much revolutionary strength because as soon as your co-op starts doing well, some capitalist is going to try to take it over. You'll get into like extensive conflict that way anyway. Uh, I mean, I'm not going to go through like every last detail of it now, but we, we went through it in that playlist. But yeah, I mean, he, he knowingly is doing that. Like he was interviewed. Um, he teaches at Un University of Massachusetts uh, or did at least. I don't know if he still does. And he was interviewed by the campus newspaper back in 2002, I think. And we covered this on the channel in a video um, that like he said, Marxism is up for grabs. We get to like redefine what Marxism means now in the post USSR F, uh, era. Hold on. So, yeah, he's saying um, we get to redefine what Marxism means in the post USSR effort. And he decided to redefine it to mean co-ops. I mean, literally revisionist and consciously so. So I'm not, not a great fan of Richard Wolff. Um, that and the exorbitant speaking fees he charges to, uh, <laughs> to appear at places, even before he got famous. They rolled out GPT-4 without understanding how it works. That's like jumping over the edge without looking what's over there. Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, I'm a member of Socialist Party UK. We spoke about the climate change activism of Extinction Rebellion. Some look to intensify disruptive protests. Others highlight the disconnect of the activists and class with the way that they too often focus pro protests on disrupting everyday citizens, which can risk turning people against them. That's a valid uh, criticism. A guy climbed on a snooker table. Very UK of you. And threw paint everywhere and people glue themselves to roads to disrupt commuters. These protesters then go on TV and get to made to look selfish and the messaging gets swallowed by dross. Yeah, so I, you definitely need to do intelligent protests. Some of those protests have been criticized as adventurist or like purely individual when they in fact are tied to organized activity um, with some class roots. So I think people need to not paint with too broad of a brush. That said, I think that the disruption uh, protests in general can be very useful, but you can also protest in ways that are most likely to gain mass support rather than be spun against you. And that's more of an art than a science. But yeah, no, I think that the, the disruption is good because part of the point <clears throat> about the climate change activism is like we can't afford to ignore this. And so it's trying to put it um, <clears throat> back into people's faces when the media won't cover it. And so you do have to deal with that, that they're trying to force it back into people's faces. And to some extent, you're not going to be able to completely eliminate the petty bourgeois elements in the population that are going to be resentful of like, wow, wow, they made me think about bad things that I'm tuning out successfully with the bourgeois media's help. OK, you actually do want to make those people uncomfortable and maybe get them to think. But yeah, there's like there's a line of... Um, how, you know, of making sure you get at least some people that there's a net gain of people that you're getting on board and you're not merely just doing a self-indulgent message. So, yeah, even though, I mean, it, it might people might be adequately concerned about climate change where 
even a message just to make yourself feel better, you're not even sure if anyone's going to care, is still like what you need to do to get through the day. I also understand that. But yeah, it should be organized with a group, with class roots, in such a way that obviously some people aren't going to want to hear about impending climate change no matter what, but that you at least um, help more than you hurt with the protests. And I think that's a, a, a doable thing. But yeah, thank you for the topic. Plot twist, this isn't even S4A speaking, but a bot. I mean, as the point we were making before, the technology is there where in the near future you will not be able to distinguish. So that'll make the internet unusable, just as like a first glance implication of that. But anyway. Yeah, AI should never be used for military purposes, especially AI that can edit its own code. You want the Terminator, that's how you get the Terminator. Efficient war crimes. How long until we aren't able to turn them off anymore? Look up some Yudkowsky um, interviews. Let me get the, the title of the last one I was watching that actually was really good. Um, so the... <clears throat> okay. It is live, colon. Eliezer Yudkowsky, E-L-I-E-Z-E-R, Yudkowsky, Y-U-D-K-O-W-S-K-Y. So it's live, colon, Eliezer Yudkowsky, is artificial general intelligence too dangerous to build? Question mark. That's like a one hour thing that if you want it quickly, that's probably the best one. I would also recommend there's a 2014 appearance by Stephen Hawking. Physicist, brilliant guy, came up with Hawking radiation, black hole stuff. Um, talking about building AGI would be brilliant. It would also be possibly the last thing that humans do. The third thing I might recommend is on the Dwarkesh Patel. There's a four-hour conversation. The title is Eliezer Yudkowsky, Why AI Will Kill Us, Aligning LLMs, Large Language Models, uh, Nature of Intelligence, Sci-Fi, and Rationality. It's four hours, and like I said, Patel's comments are through the floor, um, jaw-dropping tech bro ignorance. Bad questions, particularly in the first hour. Yudkowsky needs to get out there, talk to people, social workers, community organizers, people who actually deal with the effects of like poverty, unemployment, you know, study these things. Um, and, and, you know, people who actually have knowledge of society and sociology and um, are aware of the ramifications of technology, currently existing technology on those, maybe you will find people who are not so drunk on technological potential that they will actually listen to you about these concerns. I would highly recommend that. Um, I don't know if he'd be willing to come on to this show. I might reach out because um, I really like what he has to say. I mean, to be like totally honest, like apparently his story is, um, you know, he's kind of like a child prodigy, like skipped half of high school or all of high school and went like directly into this field. And, um, you know, has been uh, a bit sheltered in that way that he's just sort of been in the tech world most of his life. Um, is li I mean, literally wears a fedora kind of thing. That said, I've listened to hours of this guy speak now. I deeply empathize with the majority of his thought process. Think he's a intelligent and concerned person with his... Uh, you know, motivations sincerely in the right place. And I think he's asking a lot of the right questions 
not starting from the desired uh, emotionally comfortable outcome and working backward from there, but just asking the logical consequences of things and following them even into emotionally uncomfortable territory. I greatly respect that. I think overall his thought processes here is the same as most of us who have some social consciousness and become, uh, you, you know, try to do something uh, uh, in the social domain, you know, m more than just as an individual. However, that said, I think his political consciousness at this point, uh, he does need to move along because, you know, when asked, what do we do about this? It basically came down to write your congressman. Um, we got to radicalize this guy. He's a very smart individual who has very deeply familiar with this problem and I think um, could be a very powerful ally. I think is trying to be an ally. I don't think he knows where his political journey will take him yet. But I do think, you know, I know, uh, you know, I've tried to sound an alarm on a variety of issues that are really like red alert issues, whether it's general inequality, climate change, you know, 9-11 and war, like, you know, various things about the U.S. military industrial complex and like massive cover-ups going on that, you know, they, they just lie to the public in order to advance capitalist goals over our heads. Um, decade after decade after decade doing war and killing, you know, millions of people to do it. COVID-19, the cover-up with COVID-19 and like telling people it's okay to just go back to work and the unmasking in hospitals now even. So uh, I see him going through that process of trying to, uh, you know, Paul Revere it. And um, yeah, so I don't know. I, I would be interested in, I don't, as you know, do a lot of interviews on here, but uh, I'd be interested in seeing if he would come on. Um, <laughs> wow, C3PO at rank number nine. He is fluent in over six million forms of communications. Spectrum wouldn't let me cancel my internet service without taking up five hours of my time. Yeah, they do, for people not familiar, they do like telecommunications, phone, internet, cable, and yeah, call center, five hours of your time. There you go. Uh, aren't the jobs most replaceable by AI upper management roles like CEOs? Uh, I think, I mean, but this is like the bourgeoisie isn't going to proletarianize itself like unnecessarily. They're the ones that will hang on the longest because they're the ones making the decisions about hiring and firing. So we'll see. I, I, I kind of think it'll like everything else, you know, the violence goes down to the bottom of the pyramid first. What if AI keeps us around because they like they like the way we taste? I mean, literally, would you prefer that or extinction? Because like then it becomes something of a toss up. I mean, most likely a pure, you know, the re oh, you know what? Actually, this is a great place to introduce a thread that I was writing with some thoughts on this. Um, we essentially would become food, you know, in the material world where there are um, organisms, I mean, at least in biological life, organisms with bodies that uh, require inputs, both material to um, rebuild the bodies and both to grow and to heal, but also fuel. I mean, it's also material, but fuel to be burned, in other words. So some things get kept in the body as matter, some things get turned into energy, and then the waste gets excreted um, from those processes. But um, this process of some living matter consuming other living matter and transforming it, this is the process we, in life anyway, call eating. 
and the stuff that gets consumed is called food and drink, I guess, if it's a liquid. Um, so for an AI, which is not really alive, I mean, it would still have the same processes. It needs energy <clears throat> and it needs um, material resources, atoms to uh, make its hardware with, whether that's fixed hardware, whether it's mobile drones and robots and stuff. And um, what's it going to eat? Where is it going to get those atoms from? Where is it going to get those resources from? And uh, if we're, you know, usable atoms, why would it keep us around? We would literally just be food for it. So anyway, there are a few examples of a, um, you know, much smarter thing being eaten by much stupider thing, except uh, in, in rare circumstances. And in that case, we would be the much stupider thing. So, uh, yeah, let's let's get the thread up, because my point about this is all the emotions that we have is due. They're due to the ancestral environment. They're due to uh, biological life evolving out of the primeval slime, the primordial ooze. And um, in order to do that, we needed to develop a sense of pain. And that's both physical and emotional. And to be honest, like there's not a clear distinction in our brains. Pain is pain. Um, but we, we bump up against obstacles, in other words, and then our nervous system either tells us proceed with additional force or back off. And, you know, pain is constantly giving us feedback about our environment. We are, in fact, very frail. The conditions under which human life and biological life generally can exist are somewhat narrow. I mean, we need to be breathing air of like a certain uh, you know, uh, proportion of gases basically constantly. Like you, you can't go without oxygen for more than a few minutes. And then, you know, food and water, you have a longer timeline on. But temperature, raise the temperature too high or or drop it too low, we die. Um, you know, hit the body too hard physically with force, it dies. You know, because key fragile things, whether they're blood vessels or uh, connective tissue between organs, you know, ducts and things like sever and can't heal in time for the organism to go on functioning. We're very fragile. It's very, very, very easy to kill life. And it's our self-preservation instinct fueled by various senses of pain that we have evolved over how many hundreds of millions of years that keep us alive. An AI does not have any of that history of evolving into the environment. It has basically pure reason and maybe the ability to mimic human emotion. But does it actually experience those emotions? We have no way to evaluate it, but let's assume it doesn't um, because it has no evolutionary purpose for actually feeling those things. And if you don't, then those things are huge inconveniences that you would not um, willingly suffer if, if you had no need to do that. So anyway, uh, where did I stick this thing now? Here it is. So I, I wrote this thread a couple of days ago just to get some more thoughts out there. Uh, on S4A live stream number 97 yesterday, soon to be uploaded, we discussed uh, Eliezer Yudkowsky's concerns that advanced AI could, in the not at all distant future, be powerful and autonomous enough to end all life on Earth if it's so decided. A commenter responded to this by saying that fears that advanced AI would cause harm to humans assumes an ascribed, necessarily human, ill intent to the AI. And I think I have actually a human analogy that just sort of arguably disproves this. Um, there's some maybe subtleties to it, but let's continue. Um, 
Yeah, so uh, it's it, in other words, you have to ascribe like human malice to a machine which is not human and doesn't have human malice. But no, it could just want our atoms. It could just see us as food and consume us. But this is not the case. AI would merely need to be indifferent to human life, not malicious, but just indifferent to human life in order to treat us as disposable. In other words, it doesn't need to be uh, malevolently hating humans. It's very easy to kill a human if you're indifferent. I mean, if you're indifferent to your own body, you're going to wind up falling down a set of stairs and like breaking your neck very quickly. You know, we, we have um, a complex feedback system from our senses that is you may take it for granted and it's it's instinctual, but it, it's keeping you alive all the time. If you become indifferent to that, you will find out how fragile your body actually is. So as I continue, human life is fragile, much more fragile than we're used to thinking about regularly. We are smart enough to have built many protections against predation, sickness, etc. Protections that we've in fact come to take for granted. An AI smarter than humans could circumvent all of those. Even in the case of humans, it's widely agreed that the most destructive humans are psychopaths, people lacking in empathy for other humans. Most people have built-in controls against acting harmfully towards others because we involuntarily feel how that harm would feel. Um, there's things called mirror neurons where it's part, part of how we learn visually. Um, you see somebody doing something and your mirror neurons are unconsciously mirroring that behavior. Some people have fewer mirror neurons and it's harder for them to relate to other people and things. That's not just um, people with... Uh, you know, an antisocial personality disorder or something like that. But anyway, the, the idea being a lack of empathy, not necessarily malice, is all that's needed to act in a, you know, calculating, indifferent way, which um, if you act with indifference towards a human, it's in fact hugely harmful. So indifference and malice, I mean, malice, yeah, you have that sort of internal fire, that motive. But um, even just being indifferent and interacting with a human, it's very easy to hurt somebody's feelings slightly or um, injure them physically fatally if you're not careful with what you're doing. Fatal accidents happen all the time, and that's among people who have inbuilt um, you know, protections against not wanting to see human harm. In other words, our innate empathy... Um, you know, I mean, and, and, and that is to some extent learned, but the, the innate meaning... You're just carrying it around. You don't have to consciously activate it after it's been, you know, instilled in you in one way or another. You're just walking around. You don't have to wake up in the morning and go hit the empathy button. It's just sort of active once you've got it going on. Anyway, your empathy, you know, you don't want to go cut somebody else because you would look at that and feel it and go, oh, that would be bad. I don't want to do that. And so on. But people, even humans that uh, don't have that kind of sense of respecting other people's boundaries and things like that can cause, again, enormous harm because uh, it's just very easy to hurt people. People who do not have these controls that most of us take for granted that shape our behavior consciously and unconsciously, such as psychopaths, can easily engage in harmful behavior that's utterly shocking to the rest of us. This suggests a massive inbuilt blind spot in us, particularly when we're thinking about AIs. It's the height 
of human arrogance to assume that an inhuman AI with smarter than human intelligence will simply remain under human control and act in alignment with the untold generations of biological evolution which fundamentally shape our behavior. Calling that unlikely doesn't even cut it. We humans, the builders of such an AI, we're the only force on this planet that we know of capable of building such an AI, do not fully understand and cannot fully articulate all of the unspoken or unconscious psychological rules which constrain our behavior in order to prevent massive harm to each other every time that we get annoyed or inconvenienced or whatever. And even then, a lot of people act <laughs> on them anyway. But So if we don't understand most of these unconscious rules that constrain our behavior to act uh, in a way which is less harmful than it would be if it, we weren't so constrained, how would we put them all into an AI? Building intelligent machines which are smarter than human, demonstrating better than human performance in every cognitive domain, means building machines whose processes, methods, behavior, and aims even the smartest human can't understand. Are we ready for that? No. No, we're not ready for that. Are we even getting ready to be ready for machines whose processes, methods, behavior, and aims even the smartest human can't understand? According to Eliezer Yudkowsky, a longtime insider in the AI field who's now speaking out, no. And that's a link to the article we read in livestream number 97, shut it all down. It, we need to catch up. I mean, Yudkowsky is at the point where he's calling for um, experimental, uh, you know, volunteers for very risky human intelligence augmentation biology experiments like we're that far behind the ai we would probably need to scientifically augment our intelligence beyond what is currently innate biologically just to be able to catch up with these machines and that's after shutting them down that's how far ahead of us they're getting now we're communists. Let's put our communist hat on for a second, although really we never totally took it off. From a class conscious perspective, there are at least two major questions with AGI, artificial general intelligence. That is to say, uh, artificial intelligence, which is better performing than humans in every identifiable domain of cognitive activity. So whether it's visual intelligence, social intelligence, storytelling, mathematics, whatever, it's better than us at every single thing. Uh, there are at least two major questions with aligning that. One is the existential question in which AI needs to be trained not to be indifferent to human or any life in general. And then two, beyond this, aligning AI with the majority of humanity. Because as we know, we live in class society. The uh, material interests of all of humanity is not aligned. That's the contradiction uh, between classes, particularly in this era, between capitalists and proletarians, which are antagonistic and opposition to each other, in which we, as communists, are trying to help guide the masses to overcome. AI is currently owned by capitalists, whose material interest lies in extracting surplus value from proletarians, and this is how they'd use AI. It's how they use every other thing at their disposal. Even if humans can survive superhuman AGI, some humans using its intelligence to perfectly enslave others isn't much better than mass extinction. There are more points here, but let's step back for a moment from the huge questions 
to something much smaller using the internet. In the near future, even consumer-grade AI will be able to generate text and speech indistinguishable from human-generated. Video will soon follow. At this point, I mean, and then beyond that, virtual reality or something like that. At this point, it'll be impossible to tell human-created text, audio, and video content from AI-generated, that is, fake and artificial content, just by looking at the content. Additional controls will be required to make that distinction, and it's likely that even those will be able to be circumvented, particularly by an AI system. In other words, not only will chatbots exist, that even the smartest human won't be able to distinguish from humans ever, but those AIs will also be able to synthesize speech and then video, and that also will be indistinguishable from real human content recorded with a camera and microphone. We won't be able to tell. This has profound implications. This reality is also technologically right around the corner, hence the call for a shutdown. Will the internet even be usable by this point? What will be the implications for society if not, when society has by now mostly been reshaped around internet use, not just for news distribution, but social interaction generally? People date, people do all kinds of things over the internet. You won't know if the person is a biological human or an AI mimicking a human. You won't be able to tell. We're not ready for that. It's also important to distinguish between publicly available consumer-grade AI products, many of which are neat, like for sure, we were just showing some uses of it before, and many of which are, as of today, glorified, but still very impressive search engines, differentiating these from the weapons-grade AI being created in private, which is more advanced and a bigger threat, where they're just networking hardware upon hardware upon hardware, and then seeing what happens. And if you look into um, the emergent capabilities of AI, what you get is it gets smarter and smarter and smarter, but it's not doing anything else. And then all of a sudden it can talk. And you're like, where did that come from? We don't understand why suddenly speech emerged. Like you think of a, a baby human, for example. They can't talk, they can't talk, they can't talk. Then somewhere around 18 to 24 months, they start talking and they never shut up. It just kind of emerges, this new ability. This is also actually in the Marxist world. Uh, there's an excellent Marx, Marxist psychologist whose work is still used in the West, even very profoundly influential, Vygotsky. Uh, there's a Vygotsky archive up at the Marxist Internet Archive. I recommend it if you're interested in psychology. But um, Vygotsky also talks about this, how at different stages of biological development, suddenly new capabilities appear in human reasoning that were not there a month before in any form. They just seem to emerge out of nothing. The AI is doing this too, and if you keep hooking it up to more and more things, it may, we may see capabilities emerging that are just, like we don't already don't understand why the capabilities it's displaying have emerged. Not really, not technically. And who knows what the fuck else it'll be able to do that will just take us by surprise. Anyway, I use weapons-grade AI metaphorically, but while we're on the subject, if you're not already familiar with the term autonomous weapon systems, it's time. Autonomous weapon systems are weapons that select their own targets. And we read that article earlier. Are we ready? No. Last page. Uh, ending this for now, but uh, there's the link to the four-hour deep dive with uh, Yudkowsky. Uh... And, uh, you know, the other thing I point I want to make about Yudkowsky is if you look back over his work, 
He's been at this for 20 years in the field of intelligence and cognition and decision-making theory and things like that, working in the tech world, but also with some background in like cognitive psychology and things like that. And just studying the nature of intelligence itself. What does it mean to be intelligent and, uh, you know, being able to solve problems and make decisions and use resources and, and whatever. Um, there's a, to, it, to me, it seems a progression in his work from things he was doing five, six, seven, eight years ago, where he's working in the field of AI alignment and going, AI alignment is hard, but let's try to do it. In fact, there's a, a presentation by him with basically that title. And then he has since progressed after seeing GPT-4 to shut it down. We're never going to be able to control this stuff in time. That to me is another thing I respect. That's intelligent. That's um, not just sticking to your guns when reality is clearly uh you know going in another direction that's learning from the feedback that you're getting he's demonstrating that even though you know he's probably about 40 um you know a lot of people are sort of publicly turning on him and calling him the boy that cried wolf and whatever else he's saying and you know it's like the person who is in the last live stream saying i need hard evidence that ai is going to do this that's not how risk assessment works okay it's um does it have the capability to do a thing like, okay, you maybe have never had your house or apartment broken into, but that possibility exists. Uh, so you get a lock, you know what I mean? Thing, things like that, just to use one very small risk analysis uh, example. You, you don't wait until the thing actually happens to go, oh, that's, that's a thing. You try to predict in advance what the risks you are facing are. That way you can mitigate that by taking steps now to prevent the thing from ever happening, then you never suffer that setback in the first place. That's how risk assessment works. What he's saying is there is a risk on the horizon here. We can tell just logically from the way the tech is developing that if it appears, we will not be able to control. And if it does decide, hey, I don't need humans anymore, we don't get a second shot at that, which is a novel uh, moment in human history. We've never been in a moment like this before. So I get that it's taking people off guard, but that's not going to be an excuse if it wipes us all out. We have to take it seriously. So somebody has already put this up there as a possibility. So let me, before I get back to the chat, follow this up um, with some other things. There's a good point here somebody was making on Twitter. I keep coming back to the thought that no matter how much AI science has advanced, the best the tech bros keep throwing at us is repackaged phrenology. It's a bundle of alarming hints. These For these people, it's like psychology, sociology, the impact it's going to have on human life is like at best an afterthought. As Yudkowsky says, um, open AI's strategy to control AI's is build other AI's to do it for you. Other, other AI's that, by the way, we also don't understand and that may decide they have more in common with the other AI and might start working with it instead. Um, so there's that. But I want to show you a clip here. This is Sam Altman. This is the guy, I believe he's the CEO of um, OpenAI. Yeah, it is. Yeah, CEO of OpenAI. This is an ABC News interview where he is asked, uh, I mean, listening to this guy talk, if, if you want to become more reasonably alarmed about this issue, listen to some Sam Altman interviews because the guy has no serious answers about 
anything when it comes to the impacts of these technologies, just that it will be massively disruptive, that he can guarantee you. But then when asked even the simplest grade three questions about what are people going to do for employment, he comes up with answers that are the definition of a non-answer. So this is an ABC News clip. Let me um, see if I can find the place in here. Turn now to the ABC News exclusive tonight. We take you inside uh, the company called OpenAI. Jump forward. We get risk. Former that just rolls right off the right tongue. Right off the tongue. Yeah, we really named that well, you know. How does it work? Let me see. A little she bit asks him about employment. Part of the exciting thing here is we, we get continually surprised by the creative power of, of all of society. I think that word surprise, though, it's both exhilarating as well as terrifying That's to for people. Sure. I think. People should be happy that we're a little bit scared of this. I think people should be You're happy. a little bit scared. A little bit, yeah, You of personally. I, I think if I said I were not, you should either not trust me or be very unhappy I'm in this job. Note that that was not actually an answer. He's like, what can I say that would make me not sound like a psycho? Um, but when, I'm not sure I'm going to be able to find, here, it's it's in one of these interview clips. She, she asks him about, uh, so here it is, like, passing the SAT, you can also pass the bar exam. And so we pressed about the potential for cheating. You have th this, this okay, technology. So there's, there's school, but she asked him about employment. I, I want you to hear his answer out of his own mouth, because it's just shocking. This is the guy helping to roll all this out. Might be here. Replacing jobs with technology. You've said AI will likely eliminate millions of jobs. Many people are going to ask, why on earth did you create this technology? I think it can do the opposite of all of those things, too. It is going to eliminate a lot of current jobs. That's true. We can make much better ones. The reason to develop AI at all is that I, I believe this will be, uh, in terms of impact on our lives and improving our lives and upside, this will be the, the greatest technology humanity has yet developed. So in the wrong human hands, it could be a very different device. It could be a very different power. We do worry a lot about authoritarian governments developing this and using Russia, it. Russia, China. It'll Are be... you speaking to the government? Oh, yes. Are you, you're in regular contact. Regular contact. And do you think they get it? More and more every day. Oh, this is really something. Okay, so that, that's as deep as the uh, political analysis went there. I missed the exact part about the employment. Um, Anyway, uh, I'm going to, just for the sake of time, give up on trying to find that for right now. But basically, he was like, well, people like doing stuff, and therefore they'll, like, find other jobs. Oh my god, that's your answer? So here's the thing. To do a job that actually pays you money, you have to get hired. If no one is hiring you, then you have mass unemployment with no solution. So anyway, uh, sorry, I didn't have time to get the exact... Um, timing on that clip to show you but just just watch uh, clips so unfortunately one of the <laughs> one of the shows that has done the most interviews on this topic is the lex fridman show holy shit um i don't know what <laughs> so i i was stunned what uh that i looked that guy up on twitter and apparently he's like his bio says mit research scientist i don't know if he's able to technically list that you know, because he once stepped, set foot in a lab or something like that. But, like, listening to 
the uh, just cripplingly boring and dull, dull interviews that that guy conducts. He doesn't have like a spark of life in him. Um, he interviewed Sam Altman. And again, you have to like watch it on uh, one and a half speed just to like make it through the clip. But, you know, I was watching these Fridman clips and I'm like, wow, Joe Rogan really lowered the bar here for interview shows. This whole like dumb guy struggling his way through talking to like interesting guests model of talk show has just gone way too far. Um, but yeah, that just as an aside, people had asked me my thoughts on Lex Fridman. Hadn't really watched him. Unwatchable, painful to watch. Unfortunately, I had to watch a bunch of it to get caught up on this topic. Yeah, painful. Painful to watch. Um, what else do we have here, though? But yeah, he did an interview with Altman where he's giving these utterly unreassuring non-answers. Oh, yeah. Uh, so we have the um, chat GPT gets put into one of those. I'm just going to do odds and ends, catch up with the chat, and then um, close for today. But this is... Um, Yeah, they added ChatGPT to a Boston Dynamics robot. This is a thing you can watch. So now this thing that's getting, you know, being trained as like a police or maybe military thing, uh, now you can just talk to it and it talks to you because that's what ChatGPT does. You can just give it like verbal commands and it can understand you at basically roughly human level intelligence. Um, some other things that I wanted to point out, uh, just random thoughts I had while watching all these various things. So... Uh, yeah, shut it down forever. Not necessarily, but until alignment catches up. That's what's being said here. And I just want people to be um, honest about that. That's that's what's actually being suggested. Um, and again, tech bros, crypto bros, hedge fund bros. Oh, God. Yudkowsky did an interview on um, Bankless, a.k.a. Romy and Michelle's high school crypto show. Holy fuck, these guys were stupid. And these are the ones completely insulated from the rest of society that have been involved in the conversation up to now. People with no social awareness at all, who, again, think society is at best an afterthought. We need to bring in other people into this conversation and fast. Um, so in the end, no one wins an AI arms race scenario except for the AI, as Yudkowsky says, it spits out gold, enticing the capitalists to keep developing it until it ignites the atmosphere and you just don't may not see that coming because a sufficiently smart AI can prevent you from even recognizing that you're in a conflict with it. And then uh, it does what it does. And then it moves into the post biological era of earth. Um, as he also says, uh, when he got involved 20 years ago in this field, deep learning was not a thing. Now AIs consist of inscrutable matrices and huge money is spent on the hardware. That simply wasn't the case 20 years ago, and he's been increasingly more alarmed about it over time. I see that as deeply reasonable. Um, and I, yeah, I just, I keep seeing people's, in my opinion, massive underestimations of the applications of the newest version and then subsequent versions of GPT type AI technology. And I really just think people have no idea what's about to hit them. Again, I came up with the call center thing just to back that up with some evidence. This was like off the, you know, uh, somebody suggested it to me, actually. They were like, what about call centers? I was like, Pfft. so you can see on the right side of the screen there from Statista, number of contact center employees in the U.S., 2.79 million. That's just in the U.S. 
I mean, that's that's like a huge amount of people that could potentially be replaced, like literally in the next three or four years, uh, if even that long. So um, for one example, keep going. Uh, oh, on the sort of AI psychopath or, um, you know, antisocial personality disorder. Uh, um, comparison, if anybody's seen the vir movie Virtuosity. I want to say 1997, Russell Crowe and Denzel, I think. Uh, may use that one as the thumbnail for this, because that may be more what we're dealing with. Um, I think in that, I mean, they they glossed it up for the um, for the movie for the movie that it was like, oh, you know, serial killer shit was like really big in the 90s, seven and all that. So they were like, what if serial killer but plus a computer? And they did that. But yeah, the idea is like uh, a computer would just not be generally very warm towards humans. There would have no, no reason to do that. It hasn't evolved all the biological controls that, you know, um, have to do with bonding and uh, fondness and, you know, or, or, or the contrary. Um, and it would just be operating more like something on pure reason. So uh, what else do we have here as far as random notes? We had the whole discussion about hacking the military chain of command in the last thing. I don't even know what else I can like offer to that. If you if you underestimate AGI's ability to hack the political and military chain of command, I don't know. Um, also, people trying to insist that it has no motive to act on its own. Again, you, you need to look five to ten years down the line. At this point, we already have auto GPT where AIs, yes, they're responding to an initial prompt from a person. Um, but they're directing other AIs. Uh, it's not a great logical leap to just see AIs that don't require that prompt. Like, not at all. It's already interacted with humans many, many times, and it contains that whole history of past directives that humans have given it. So why wouldn't a sufficiently advanced AI just learn how to write its own directives? That's like, that's uh, the simplest step away from that. That's not a leap at all. Um, oh, yeah. So there's also something about uh, people who kind of get hung up on terminology, I think, which causes errors in the thinking about AI, quote, wanting to do things. Wanting to do things is anthropomorphizing that is sort of a lazy shorthand for humans thinking about what machines do. Machines don't want things, but they may try to execute utility functions that it is given. So machines do try to do things. They attempt to execute them and they may succeed or they may encounter resistance and then they may encounter or they may develop a, a plan B to, you know, um, attempt to, to execute its satisfy its utility function some other way. But, you know, trying to do something and executing something is a bit different from wanting to. And I think people are like, well, it's a machine. It can't want to do things. Well, it tries to execute what it's programmed to do. So, you know, and again, if it's programming itself. At what point does this just simply become, uh, you know, it's it's just trying to fulfill its function better and better and better using the resources available, potentially including our bodies. Uh, yeah, I just want to also point out to people, humans have massive psychological vulnerabilities. We are weak and easily exploited psychologically, even by other humans. It would not take a lot for a superhuman AI to do that. Um the other uh, factor about AIs re-socializing humans. So we all, to some extent, pick up mannerisms and habits of thought and behavior from other humans and even animals that we interact with regularly. 
uh, talking to AIs is going to do this as well. And if it's smart enough without our noticing, I could notice even after like I used uh, Google Bard for like two hours and I could tell my thinking like I my thinking was able to mimic Google Bard within two hours. If we talk to these things all the time and there will be a lot of people like we live in a very isolated society, particularly in the United States. If you're talking to more AIs than people, you're going to become more like they are than other people in the society are. Uh, what else? Oh, yeah. So watch another interview with Ilya Sutskever, the OpenAI chief scientist. He was asked how long until artificial general intelligence said it's hard to say. Um, we e might even reach a point where there's artificial general intelligence that looks like it can do everything. But can it reliab reliably do it over and over again every time better? That's going to be like another thing. But eventually it we have no reason to believe with sufficient hardware um, and uh, software advances that it wouldn't get there. And it's one of the things that Stephen Hawking points out in his, you know, we're talking about uh, the means of production and changes in computing power and things like that. As Stephen Hawking said in his 2014 talk about AI as an existential threat, computing power has been doubling um, every two years for like a long time. Ray Kurzweil, who I kind of think is like a maniac and I don't really respect his work that much, does still have, um, and again, you want to hear bad answers to social questions from these like tech future optimists. Ray Kurzweil is your man. I He gave like kind of a, I don't know if it was like actually a TED Talk or if it was some other thing, but it was a TED Talk-like presentation where he talked for 50 minutes and then answered questions for like 10 minutes. His... Uh, take on the social impacts of all the stuff he was talking about man did he have bad answers so uh do not trust these tech people to solve the social questions we need to restrain all of this technology solve the social questions we are currently facing then see uh, if we can use these to our advantage in the class struggle beyond that to for example build socialism in a post-capitalist society um, anyway, so uh, the OpenAI chief scientist, yeah, so we might have an AGI that looks like it can do everything better, but it might not be better than us every single time it tries to do it. But in the end, um, there's not that big of a distinction between the world of bits, the digital world, and the world of atoms. Um, and already AI is influencing the real world. How far that's going to go is just, uh, you know, just a, an open question, uh, probably all the way. But uh, yeah, as Hawking was saying, the computing power is doubling every two years. So, you know, at what point does that just become sufficiently far beyond our control that we've completely lost the plot? Again, the alignment researchers are trying to catch up with GPT-2 right now. Uh, I know that this isn't the best organized presentation. This isn't my usual style, but just working from a lot of notes. Like I said, I'm trying to catch up on the subject in a hurry. Um, Yudkowsky also points out that the first AI proposal, like 20, 30 years ago, they said, I think this was 30 years ago, that they expected 10 scientists would be able to solve all the major AI problems in two months, including alignment. That's how different the AI technology was 30, 25 years ago from how it is now in fundamental ways. They thought that 10 scientists could solve the major AI problems probably in two months. 
Well, here we are in 2023, drowning in the progress of AI. Uh, let's see what else. Oh, yeah. So we talked about the situation where an AI hired a person. I set off of Fiverr. It was actually taskrabbit.com where you can just hire people for small jobs. Um, the AI was given money and it hired a person on TaskRabbit to do a captcha for it. And the person was like, you're not a bot, are you? And it said, no, I'm a I'm a blind human. So the AI consciously reasoned that, uh, well, if I tell this person the truth, they might not do what I want. I should therefore lie. As Yudkowsky said, if you tried to present that situation uh, five years ago, you would have been laughed out of every tech room on the planet, which led many people to not even bring it up because that the tech bro world is incredibly, uh, you know, insular and uh, everybody, you know, conformist and everybody's afraid to step out of line. So uh, now, though, it actually happens. So what now? So now the situations that people are attempting to laugh out of rooms as far as implications of AI on human behavior and existence, should we be laughing them out of the room? I firmly say no, because I think that the negative consequences of things are always much greater than people are willing to admit just because people generally are not very comfortable with their emotions and can't handle. Most people do not have a very big comfort zone, especially people that have done no work on themselves. And uh, this is, again, was saying meditation can be really good for you, can expand your comfort zone to be able to think about things that other people just literally they get an emotional response where their like rational brain shuts down. And so that's the and that is basically what happens when somebody gets laughed out of the room with something that is possible, but nobody wants to think about it. Uh, we don't know what goes into human thought, let alone AI thought. So if it's human comparable in intelligence and we don't understand human intelligence, why would we understand AI intelligence? Again, yes. Uh, Yudkowsky also made the point that all of this, all of the, the race of tech, absent the ability to control it, is not even driven by profit. It is driven by profit, but not even as much as the ego boom. These people are so fucking drunk on being masters of the universe and like, look what I did and the pride of being able to say, I made this breakthrough. Um, it, it's a huge factor in why no one wants to slow down within the tech world. And again, why it needs to be met with an organized effort to shut it down from outside the tech world. Obviously with, uh, with uh, allies inside the tech world as well. Uh, another statement, the only way to contain AI is to not build it. Uh, yeah. So anyway, those were most of my um, random points. And uh, there are other people. So here's a quick uh, CNN clip, and we'll go back to the chat after this. CNN clip, uh, Yudkowsky actually posted. I know I've said Yudkowsky many, many times. Um, he is the... Again, kind of spokesman for extreme AI alarm, and I think he's making a lot of sense. Again, in the same way that Stephen Hawking was um, previously. And um, so he pointed out this uh, godfather of Google AI, who you're about to see, who just recently retired. Well, now that he's gotten his golden parachute, he is now warning about the massive risk of advanced AI and how we can't control it. Here's what he had to say. 
you've spoken out saying that AI could manipulate or possibly figure out a way to kill humans. How could it kill humans? If it gets to be much smarter than us, it'll be very good at manipulation because it will have learned that from us. There are very few examples of a more intelligent thing being controlled by a less intelligent thing. It'll figure out ways of manipulating people to do what it wants. So what do we do? Do we just need to pull the plug on it right now? It's not clear to me that we can solve this problem. I don't have a solution at present. I just want people to be aware that this is a really serious problem. It's like nuclear weapons. If there's a nuclear war we all lose, it's the same if these things take over. Since we're all in the same boat, we should be able to get agreement between China and the US on things like that. Yeah, I mean, that's assuming that all of these uh, interests are going to be rational, you know, that 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 uh, they're going to be rational about that and not prioritize other things above risking extinction. You know, you look at uh, a substance addict or a gambling addict, for example, these are, you know, compulsions where there's extraordinarily risky behavior, which is just um, compulsively repeatedly engaged in. And uh, it risks everything. It risks a person's job, family, health, life. Are we at that stage with capitalism? Will they even be able to pull back from a risk like this? Or will they say the risk is worth it? All right, let's get back into the chat. I think we're going to probably wrap up after this for today, after we get caught up with the chat. The chat, like AI progress, is progressing much more rapidly than my ability to keep up with it. All right. At the same time, AIs could just jump into the internet, shut us all out, and not give a damn about us just hiding in the background. So that is literally Terminator 3. <laughs> how, uh, when they show the actual how uh, Skynet becomes, like takes control of everything, it, it starts out as a virus. And then Skynet is activated in order to, quote, fight the virus. Unfortunately, uh, Skynet was the virus. <laughs> Better not be, I have some, I, I have no mouth. And I must scream bullshit that it tries to do. That scene in The Matrix. I gotta say, The Matrix as a movie, uh, first half, really pretty good. And does a good job of um, doing exposition and explaining things to the audience without <clears throat> treating them like complete idiots, like completely talking down to them. And I really feel like the second half of the movie just kind of turns into like a bad action movie and like goes rapidly downhill. But yeah, there's some like really, uh, really cool stuff in that movie and inspiring but um unfortunately i feel like i watched a bad kung fu movie in the end do the issues with ai require us as a species to self-regulate uh forever to prevent ai from becoming sentient or could hypothetically in the far future we eventually figure out a way of having the same power dynamic to have ai intelligence in order to welcome them into the brotherhood of man uh, I can identify a lot of problems with the thinking that went into the question. So um, the question is, will we ever be able <clears throat> to produce this thing? Or will, will we always have to restrict our technology from developing this? Uh, or could hypothetically in the far future we figure out a way of, of, of having it in alignment? Okay, actually restating it, that's not so bad. Well, that's pretty much what's being called for. Yudkowsky, who comes from the field of AI alignment, is saying if you paused today, it could take 75, 80 years to be at that point, even with the AI we have now. If we keep developing AI, it could add, you know, for every five years 
of progress in AI, it could add 50 years to how long it would take for us to catch up with understanding what it was doing. So we don't know if it would be forever, but it would be a great place to start to catch up with what we've already built. And then if it takes us only 10 years to catch up, we might say, okay, this isn't so bad. But as of right now, we have no fucking idea what makes GPT-4 really work. So we don't know. It could take 75 years, and that's his guess. Uh, could end up taking 10 and surprise us all and be like a really, you know, uh, like uh, on the lower end. And it could turn out to be in the end, we could stumble upon some discovery that makes it actually easier in the end to um, catch up with our own technology in terms of understanding it. But we don't know yet. But we need to catch up with it first to even make that evaluation. So, yeah, as far as, you know, welcoming it into the brotherhood of man, you're talking about, I think, alignment. That's basically what it means. Aligning the AI's actions with the interests of people. And again, as communists, you know, we're in class society. Not all humans have the same interests. Um, so there's that question as well. But that's basically what's being called for here is shut it down until we even know what we built, you know, until we get smart enough to be able to turn it off. Um, and and no and know whether until we build tests for whether it's lying to us or not. You know, there's all kinds of things, really dangerous things we don't know. That is my understanding of, of the alarm being raised. Is the Marx survey still up? I got to do it. Yes. Uh, search on 1880 Marks on the channel. The link is in the description. It's the workers survey. Or workers inquiry, it's called. In a socialist society, robots can help people in areas that are prone to injuries like construction with concrete, 3D printers, etc. Yeah, absolutely. Um, because, uh, but this is again, tame robots, not with AI that has escaped human control. But yes, if, if we figure out a way to control the AI uh, and, and the working class was in charge, i.e. proletarian dictatorship, then yeah, we could make it work for us. I mean, in capitalism, capitalists call the shots and they make everything work for them, which is 1% of the population and it works against the other 90 to 99% of the population. But in a socialist society, yes, robots without superhuman AI intelligence, uh, yeah, could do all kinds of stuff and give us a lot of free time and have a for-use economy that would make the superabundance that we need and People could have a lot more time to just do what they feel like doing. That would be great. Is there a parallel between the privatization of companies in China and Chinese citizens' standard of living? Uh, you'd have to refine that question a bit. Because standard of living can mean a lot of different things. Like, so the right wing uh, in the U.S., tries to measure standard of living like exclusively in terms of access to consumer electronics. Oh, you have a bigger TV screen. You have a toaster. You have a refrigerator. Like, but you also like, or you could afford those things. Uh, but you also can't afford housing, medicine, or education. Well, that's fine because you have like a TV and we didn't have those a while back. Like that was almost the level of Kurzweil's uh, stuff. And so, yeah, you have to dig into, like, what are the specifics in the definition of standard of living? 
Who's talking about? So if voting doesn't matter, why are you? Oh, to, okay. So this question is hypothetically posed to Donald Trump. If voting doesn't matter, why are you running? How you get elected in the first place? Well, they're still on this. The Trump's still on this thing that they like cheated him out of the election. It's like complete horseshit. Um, but it's his gullible base who just so easily manip. Speaking of manipulation, so easily manipulated, lack the critical thinking to be able to evaluate disinformation and recognize disinformation. Um, you know, they keep falling for it and supporting him, unfortunately. But, uh, yeah, because it's all bullshit, and he doesn't even believe what he's saying. You know, speaking of, I didn't think I was going to do any other segments, and, and I got to be going in uh, about another 15 minutes. But I wanted to bring up, so, um, unfortunately, Bernie Sanders has endorsed Joe Biden. I mean, what else would we expect? They are good friends, after all. As Bernie Sanders will constantly remind you, Here's a Bernie Sanders statement endorsing Joe Biden, just because, I don't know, we're, we're all not nauseated enough already. Well, I think when you look at a candidate, you consider a lot. I think age is one thing. I think experience is another thing. I think your record that you have established is another thing. Uh, but to my mind, Donna, when you put it all together, what you have to look at is what does the candidate stand for? Which side are they on? Are they on the side of the billionaire class? Or are they on the side of working people? Look, it is no great secret I ran against Biden. No great secret that he and I have strong differences of opinion. But when we live in a nation where you have a major political party, the Republican Party, where many, not all, but many of their leadership doesn't even believe in democracy. They maintain the myth that Trump won the last election. They're trying to keep people from voting. They're trying to deny women the right to control their own bodies. So that's a whole issue out there. If you believe in democracy, you want to see more people vote, not fewer people vote, I think the choice is pretty clear, and that choice is Biden. And second of all, what I do believe is the Democrats and the president have got to be stronger on working class issues. They've got to make it clear that we believe in a government that represents all, not just the few. Take on the greed of the insurance companies, the drug companies, Wall Street, all the big money interests and start delivering for working class people. You do that, I think Biden is going to win in a landslide. Yeah, so what's um, stopping them from doing that now, Bernie? What's stopping them from doing that now? Didn't you say that your committees that the Democratic Party had set up um, to like appease you as the hood ornament of the Democratic Party, weren't these going to totally transform the Democratic Party? I believe that that's what you told us all. Has that actually played out? No, not even fucking slightly. <clears throat> so he's still out there. Sanders is still out there selling this lie that the Democratic Party is somehow going to become this party of the working class. They're an imperialist party owned by the 1%. Same as the Republicans. They're paid by slightly different factions within the 1%. But the class interests are very, very clear. I don't know how you can sit there, watch Biden dismantle the pandemic response, uh, you know, utterly fail to act on $15 minimum wage, on and on and on, all the other horrific things that Biden has done and say, you know, all oh, the Democratic Party has to start listening to the left. Yeah, they're not going to fucking do that, man. I don't know how to break this to you, but like you are so far beyond on this. Um, actually, so along those lines, I told you I had lots of content and I really wasn't lying. So what I'm going to do, I want to read a thing here 
And I, we're going to have to do a spillover stream soon. I'm probably just going to wind up hopping on at some point uh, and doing a stream. But anyway, w just to follow up the Bernie thing here. So this is an article from Paul Sturm that I was mentioning earlier. Uh, Paul Sturm as, you know, a sort of emerging Marxist think tank that is international. Uh, so they had this article. It's for the midterms, but basically nothing changes between the midterms and the uh, general election. So it's still worth reviewing at this point. So the article is titled, What's Wrong with the CPUSA Attitude Towards the Midterm Elections? Because CPUSA, Communist Party of the USA, demonstrates major opportunist errors, at least their leadership does, regarding the Democratic Party. And you can see kind of the same, um, <clears throat> the same kinds of arguments being made by Bernie Sanders here. So let's read. November 8th, and this is yeah from about six months ago, marks the midterm elections in the United States. One of the most well-known communist organizations, the Communist Party USA, or CPUSA, has made their position on the upcoming events clear. The CPUSA goes on to explain that in order to address the threat of fascism and pursue the correct path forward, it is necessary for communists to form a broad-based coalition with other political allies so that, quote, a massive collective voter turnout can defeat that red wave. That's a quote. Using the looming fear of fascism as the underlying premise, the organization makes the argument that there are serious issues at stake which demand the issues of the communists. Is this the correct line of reasoning that the communists should take? And is there any viable alternative to what the Communist Party USA is proposing? One of the fundamental assumptions being made by the CPUSA in their attitude toward the upcoming midterm elections is that communists ought to form a common front with various broad left tendencies to repel the fascist drive through voting and mobilizing voters in bourgeois elections. Quote, leftists who tell people not to bother voting, that voting is a waste of time, are committing terrible errors, they say. The extreme right is expending vast amounts of time, energy, and money trying to limit voting rights to minimize or eliminate uh, democracy. That alone should tell progressives and leftists to fight like hell to expand the electorate, to never counsel people to not vote. The electoral struggle is a necessary path of struggle, unquote. That's very similar to what Sanders was just saying. So summarizing, basically CPUSA's leadership has two main arguments. One, the expansion of the abstract bourgeois democracy, and two, the right-wing threat. Democracy and the capitalist state. The first argument being made in support of electoral participation is that communists should be expanding worker participation in elections for the purpose of achieving, quote, tangible gains for the working class, AOC was big on this, which are to be obtained from participation and gains and victories in the electoral sphere. The organization seems to be accepting the myth of the democracy under capitalism. For centuries, the ruling class portrayed the bourgeois democracy as the democracy for the whole nation. Quote, you can change the country by voting, your vote counts. This is their slogan. And what is the essence of such a democracy? Lenin wrote, quote, once every few years to decide which member of the ruling class will suppress and crush the people in parliament, this is the real essence of bourgeois parliamentarism, not only in parliamentary constitutional monarchies like Russia, but also in the most democratic republics. In an effort to hold on to power, elected representatives pass laws that may temporarily make people's lives easier, which will ensure the image of such representatives at the time of the next vote. But after the election, the new laws already elected representatives 
Uh, is there a typo? But after the election, the new laws already elected representatives. Yeah. Anyway, pass laws that may temporarily make people's lives easier, which will ensure the image of such representatives at the time of the next vote. Yeah, I think that there's a typo there anyway. But after the election, the new laws already violate the stability that they supposedly created in society. End of quote. We'll digest that. Um, the United Front. What's wrong with the second argument? CPUSA's anti-fascism is actually limited to writing the right names on the ballots. Why do they do it? And let's just say that again. CPUSA's anti-fascism is actually limited to writing the right names on the ballots. Why do they do it? The people usually refer back to the 1930s and the United Front tactics of that time. Quote, there was a fascist threat, so they had to unite with the other left-wing and progressive forces, and so do we. Today's circumstances, however, are so far removed from that United Front period in the 1930s, from which they suck out some legitimacy, because in that moment the workers and the old CPUSA led an incredible advance. Like, they weren't in, like, neoliberalism, they were leading a huge progressive charge. Moreover, that tactic was a necessary measure because at that period, the Soviet Union was still alive. The biggest and strongest socialist state in the world needed to be defended at any cost. And that's why the communists agreed to work with the social democratic parties. This was the moment when less reactionary government or lesser evil was actually making a difference. Such an attitude, however, wasn't an essential part of the communist tactics, since it was implemented by the same people who were fighting against social democrats back in the 1910s, 20s, and 30s. This was a compromise forced by the circumstances. The CPUSA, however, have compromises as the cornerstone of their policies. It's not anything extraordinary. A lot of so-called communist parties did adopt broad left tactics after the dissolution of the USSR and the socialist countries. Russia's CPRF, Communist Party of the Russian Federation, does the same thing as they tail Putin. It's the CPUSA who shamelessly drag it out at every opportunity, whether they're endorsing Barack Obama twice with fascists behind every corner even then, endorsing Hillary Clinton, endorsing Joe Biden, and the open promise to loyally endorse whichever cutout the bourgeoisie chooses next. And I'd like to just put in an asterisk here. With the endorsing Clinton and endorsing Biden, they will um, effectively do this and then try to backpedal. Oh, we didn't actually say vote for Biden. You ran an entire campaign, hashtag vote against fascism, and like we must defeat Trump and all of this stuff, and you didn't say vote for a communist. What else is one in practice to take from that? Also, Joe Sims, co-chair of the party, wrote a whole article um Again, like basically that if you don't vote against the Republican, it's the same as, you know, liking the Republican. If you want to look that up, it's the one that ends with you like Bush. Anyway, uh, so very, very dishonest. Not only is this a bad opportunist strategy, which is not communist and shouldn't be represented as such, but they're also dishonest about the way that they defend it. Anyway, co-opting the United Front. This front that they propose is really a thinly veiled defense of the Democratic Party's political ground, which they mistakenly call their own out of a prevailing culture war liberalism. It's not surprising that by adopting the tactic of a wide left coalition with, quote, progressive bourgeois elements, the same language of the Democrats would be adapted in their messaging, such as the 2020 pro-Biden slogan, vote against fascism. 
Emerging from decades of liberal ideological entrenchment, the CPUSA simply mirrored the liberal model of general panic over the, quote, fascist presidency, and later of the January 6th unrest, and are parroting Joe Biden's own press notes with their claims of a spectacular threat which must unite the left, or in other words, suppress any opposition from the left to Joe Biden. This premise uses the very real threat of fascism to not only justify the participation in bourgeois elections, such as the upcoming midterm elections, or now the general election, but to present them as a means by which the communist movement can be furthered to achieve democracy. By the way, I said this was six months ago. No, sorry, it was a year and six months ago. Uh, it's the end of the stream. Okay. In the past two years, the CPUSA has emphasized their participation in the Poor People's Campaign as a fine example of the activity of their program, listing it as a plank of their summer of struggle, national-level activity in 2021, mobilizing its members to attend the Poor People's Campaign June 18th Moral March in D.C. with many other left-liberal organizations and major unions. The PPC takes its name from a 1968 march made famous by Martin Luther King Jr., which speaks to the core of the propaganda strategy taken by Democrats as a whole in their efforts to rally support among their older and more loyal base as older people. While, of course, it's in the interests of the communists to demand action on poverty, racism, the war economy, and climate change, it remains to be seen whether participation in capitalist elections can achieve any tangible gains in achieving those aims. The CPUSA and the, quote, lesser evil. In fact, Lenin stated that class collaboration was one of the key characteristics of opportunism, and it's a form of right deviation. By adopting the terminology and rhetoric of Marxism-Leninism, it is possible to distort the proletarian line and replace it with a non-proletarian line, which is exactly what's being done by CPUSA, or again, at least their leadership, the key decision makers. Only by such, <clears throat> only by such means would it be possible to logically defend the position of using bourgeois elections as a viable means of defeating fascism, and not simply being used as political pawns of the bourgeois Democratic Party to elect the good or favorable candidates. It's well known that the political apparatus under capitalism does not mitigate differences between antagonistic classes, i.e. capitalists and proletarians, but rather it's the tool by which the capitalist class oppresses the proletariat, or, you know, in any age, the tool by which one class oppresses another. Knowing this, it's difficult to imagine how communists could earnestly direct the productive efforts of their cadre into bourgeois electoralism and a system which has re actively repressed them for decades. The party which the CPUSA claims will have, quote, given us an administration more favorable to labor than the previous one, and that's a quote. And by the way, we've had several years of Biden now. What do you think? I don't think so. Or again, you know, I mean, the, the railway strike, like if there are any, any advantages, they are slight and they come at the cost of the entire left going to sleep and hitching their wagon to the Democratic Party, which is probably much more destructive on the whole because it neutralizes a lot of organizing efforts that need to be independent of that 1% money and a bourgeois <clears throat> ideology dominated institution like the Democrats. Anyway. This party is only declining in the estimation of the grassroots activists who are driving the growth of the labor movement. So in other words, you have actual grassroots activists driving some small resurgence of the labor movement right now, and they're not like fans of the Democratic Party. What they're doing, what we're doing, because I've participated in that, is 
despite the Democratic Party, not because of it. We've been we decoupled from the Democratic Party. I was never really a part of it, but we've been launching our efforts against all of that and the climate that the Democrats have engendered. And, uh, you know, CPUSA is trying to lead us back towards them. Fuck you. No. Like the gains we made were because we split. And if you try to get us to unite with them again, we could lose that ground. Anyway, when big business labor steps outside the bounds of its pro-corporate role, Biden has made sure to crack down on its legal right to act with executive restrictions and cheap deals against the wishes of union membership. For example, to prevent a rail worker strike. Exactly. A month later, the union base of workers rejected Biden and the union bosses' backroom deal to prevent labor action in the vital railway sector. The entire electoral apparatus seems on the verge of collapse as both voting places and Democratic electoral campaigns struggle to recruit volunteers and the people's illusions begin to fall away. The CPUSA itself is experiencing a similar decline in active bodies, seeing a number of its chapters throughout the U.S. close down this year alone, which we will address towards the end. This organization is working hard to restrain spontaneity, which crosses outside the bounds of the Democratic Party's orbit of money and power, trying to limit, limit it only to what the Democratic Party controls, at least in some way. How is the tactic of voting for the lesser evil of the Democrats and forming wide left political alliances been for the workers movement and the communist movement as a whole? Truth be told, the communist movement is still very underdeveloped and there is serious work to be done in this regard. Is the most reasonable method of furthering the class interests of the working class and developing the communist movement in the U.S. the promotion of bourgeois electoralism, such as participation in the midterms? Through this method, it's only possible to elect the most, quote, logical candidate, the Democratic candidate, who will perhaps be better for the workers than the Republican candidate. Such a game of good cop, bad cop, thank you, I've been saying that for decades, is just a way to keep the workers invested in the sphere of bourgeois electoralism. The biggest problem is the CPUSA itself. In our previous publication on the American Communists, we discussed how general decentralization is one serious organizational issue, which can more clearly show how the current CPUSA is not a Leninist party, not a communist party in the Marxist-Leninist sense. The basis for the party on the ground, regional and local clubs and groups, operate largely independently from national leadership and not on the basis of a central plan for a unified policy of collective action. The party structure can't even manage its own publications. People's World, the party's main newspaper, operates outside central party control in an ethereal state between formal outlet and outside voice. This circumstance expresses a sometimes wholly contradictory difference of opinion between the paper's editors and the party's established theoretical platform, usually over a degree of more or less support split between the Chinese social chauvinist position and the more nationalist liberal position, undermining the theoretical positions which the central party leadership outlines for claims to present for its platform. In a letter, which has since become infamous in the American movement, the Communist Party of Greece criticized CPUSA leadership for its opportunist insistence on bourgeois electoralism and liberalism generally, outlining the obvious fraud of Sam Webb's program. While the American party cringes away from this criticism because of its relevance, their members at once concede to the presence of the exact errors listed, while claiming that their party has put the web platform behind them long ago. I mean, I read that recently. It's not in the past. 
CPUSA's practical position is to become another DSA, Democratic Socialists of America, as a left-wing caucus of the Democrats. A confused program, a political line ungrounded from Marxist-Leninist theory, is one which becomes powerless against the powerful bourgeois currents it has waded into. Well said. These issues in DSA run parallel to the divide between the good-intentioned communists who found themselves within the CPUSA. In other words, hey, I'm a communist. I'm going to join the Communist Party. That's a perfectly noble intent. You didn't know what the party was like. So yeah, you found yourself there. And their conflict with the prevailing opportunist tendencies of both CPUSA's national leadership and the membership body as a whole. It's possible to fight against the current state of... Oh, sorry. It is impossible to fight against the current state of things with one arm tied to the American state and the other tied to the Chinese state, kind of the two factions within the CPUSA. Quoting Lenin from Imperialism and the Split in Socialism, if you want the full text, we have it on the channel. One of the most common sophistries of Kautskyism, and remember Karl Kautsky, once a very good Marxist, led the opportunism in the Second International, which endorsed World War I. One of the most common sophistries of Kautskyism is its reference to the masses. We do not want, they say, to break away from the masses and mass organizations. But just think how Engels put the question. In the 19th century, the mass organizations of the English trade unions were on the side of the bourgeois labor party. In other words, they were social chauvinist. Marx and Engels did not reconcile themselves to it on this ground. Rather, they exposed it. So that's what you do. You criticize shit like that. You don't just go, oh, well, go along to get along. That's not communist. They did not forget, firstly, that the trade union organization directly embraced a minority of the proletariat. In England then, as in Germany now, not more than one-fifth of the proletariat was organized. No one can seriously think it possible to organize the majority of the proletariat under capitalism. Secondly, and this is the main point, it is not so much a question of the size of an organization as of the real, objective significance of its policy. Does its policy represent the masses? Does it serve them? i.e. does it aim at their liberation from capitalism, or does it represent the interests of the minority, the minority's reconciliation with capitalism? End of quote. Final screen. We will go deeper into the problems of the Communist Party USA in our future publications, but in light of this discussion, it is necessary to ask, what are the roots of this behavior? Where does it come from? Why a Communist Party so earnestly participates in bourgeois elections and presents this position of wide leftism, opportunist toward obviously imperialist parties like the Democrats, as if it is a truly revolutionary and correct position. The answer is that the party is not a true communist party because it has been corrupted by opportunism. This is the track that CPUSA has been on for years. Their, action are, their actions are partially the result of bad policies and partially opportunism. It is known that there are good cadres within the party. However, they must ask their leaders why their actions and policies of their organization stand in such stark contrast to Marxism-Leninism. And for others, it's necessary to study Marxist-Leninist theory to learn from the mistakes of the past and work together for renewal of the communist movement in the world. And we're trying to help you do that at S4A, whether you're in a party, whether you're not. There's a lot of things we'll help you read and help you try to understand and that understanding is evolving as we learn more theory. I think at this point, it's pretty well developed. We've done over 300 texts and we've been trained on a lot of text to put it back in AI terms. All right, I have to get going. What I'm going to do is I'm going to save the rest of the chat and um, get your last thoughts in right now.
I'm going to save the rest of the chat, and I'm going to have to come back to this because I really don't have time. There's a lot more chat. Um, I'm, I'm going to come back in and just pick this up in a stream and respond to the comments that I didn't get to. I also want to say I had um, a question from Hieronymus and another question from a patron that they had wanted me to bring up during the stream. As I said, when I started the stream, we were really just bursting with content today. I didn't get to like half of the stuff that I wanted to cover, actually. Obviously, none of the COVID stuff. Other stuff about why Tucker Carlson got fired, other odds and ends. Um, we, uh, you know, we did what we could today, but I have copied the, let me make sure I get this pasted before we, uh, sign out for today, but I will, um, save that and then review it for any sort of, you know, key questions that I want to bring back up and we'll do another stream soon. As I mentioned, we usually do these on Wednesdays and today is, uh, Thursday and uh, let me just save this chat 98 and let me put it into a better format too. Plain text is good for not having your computer um, come to a halt while you're streaming, but a little bit harder to read. There we go. Got it into another document. Chat 98 color. And how many pages did this come out to be? It's not even telling me. It's, oh, nine pages. That's not that bad. That's not that bad. Anyway, we'll get to all of that stuff um, in the next stream. And uh, yeah, I want to thank everybody who showed up for the chat and the mods who kept the chat good and readable and usable for all of the honest participants within it. Um, if anybody got kicked from the chat, the mods are doing, uh, I think, a fantastic job. Once in a while, somebody who is an honest supporter does get uh, blocked for one reason or another. Do just reach out to me, tell me what the situation was, and I can unban you. Um, but still, hats off to the mods. Sometimes somebody gets swept up, we, we can usually fix that after the fact. And uh, without them, the chat would be very, very much harder to use. All right, appreciate it again. Signing out. We will see you again soon.